a vintage review of M12, and listener feedback about fun in Episode 3 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to Episode 3 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. In episode three of the show, we're going to cover M12 and listener feedback. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at ManyInsanePlays on Twitter or email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com. So let's get things started right off with M12. And first card we're going to cover, Visions of Beyond. Pretty cool. We're really excited to talk about M12. Absolutely. And we've got a card right off the bat that looks just like Ancestor Recall on the <laughs> surface, right? So we have a number of cards here we want to cover in specific. Not a whole set review, of course. But right. there's actually several... The vintage in, set review. The vintage set review. There's actually several relevant cards in this set. How many new cards are... Printed M12. Fifty plus, I think, is the number. Awesome, and we've got a good number to go through. So let's start. We're starting with Visions of Beyond. What so, was your first impression when you saw this card? First impression, as it is for many vintage cards, is the casting cost of one blue. Anytime right. you see that, you're like, all right, what does this card do? Because <laughs> because it is immediately playable. That casting cost is, as you put it, pervasive throughout the format. So I mean, just what are some of the one casting cost blue spells in vintage? We Let's see. Ancestral Recall, Brainstorm, uh, Ponder, Preordain. Those are the big ones spell to see Pierce. play right now. Then you get into, sure, Spell Pierce, spell Pierce Dispel, Steel Sabotage, Null, Blue, Blue Elemental Blast. Blast. Yep. This casting cost. This, I, I don't have the data right in front of me, but this casting cost could be the most common one that's played. Steel Sabotage, yeah. Stifle, and so on and so on. Beyond the reasonable doubt, any of those cards. Are... Another big one casting cost spell is Mystic Remora. I've seen a lot of play recently. <laughs> no kidding. The, the point is that this is a, a very playable casting cost in Vintage, given both that blue is the most important color. Mm-hmm. And then one is the most efficient. You can get a blue spell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, except maybe zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides tax negation yeah. and probe, Force I guess of will. there are more. But those are yeah. Those that doesn't actually cause mm-hmm. zero. That's right. It's free, but it doesn't. Well, but one is definitely the median mana cost for blue spells in Type One. <laughs> <clears throat> so. This card, obviously on its surface, it's yet another in a long line. How did you feel when you saw this card? What was your impression? Like, not your analysis, but what did you think? I thought, here we go, another card that has the words, draw three cards (laughs) in it. Because it is not the first, and it won't be the last, and they always... They use this effect as something of a teaser. In fact, they, yeah. used, to, they used to preview cards card by saying, here's another card for one blue that has the words draw three cards on it. I forget the, which card it was. They teased it that way. This card should be called the big tease. The big tease. Or the blue tease. But hey, you know what they did, though, is they made, unlike many other cards, unlike Ancestral Vision and Shared Discovery and several other garbage cards, well, not that Ancestral Vision is garbage, but not playable in Type 1. Unlike all these cards, though, they gave it kind of an out. They gave it the ability that if you don't maximize this card, you exactly. can still just cycle it for one blue. Yes. Which, aside from two life, is a pretty efficient cycling cost to begin with. Right. So in a deck that uses this card, 
even if it is not reaching its primary goal of mm-hmm. having the, the Uber threshold, the you still be able to have some utility out of the card. There have been so many. It, I, I think it's interesting that you call you called this a teaser card, but inadvertently pointed the fact this card is a tease. It's a <laughs> card that people look at and they drool over. It's like a pinup right. card. You know, like wow. I, how can I get this thing? I'm going to draw four <laughs> cards. I'm going to draw three cards, and I have four of them in my deck. <laughs> I, th- I think uh, I, I do want to do a careful analysis, but I think in terms of the, you know, the, the big picture, they printed a number of, of these cards that are just blue teases. Right. I mean, hatching plans is a tease. Right. Uh, what's that's a good one. The, what's the card that you draw three cards that's blue blue that sees play in springtime? Ideas unbound. Ideas unbound is a big tease. Yep. I mean, there there have been some cards, and of course, a lot of the blue spells that draw spells that have been played haven't been a tease. Like standstill was no tease. Mm-hmm. Thirst for knowledge was no tease. The ones that are legitimately good bubble to the top, and the other ones are just false Teases. imitations. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's difficult to tell sort of at the outset which those are going to be because, mm-hmm. I mean, look at strategic planning. I think that well, strategic planning is a separate. It's it's it, a corner case, granted. Well, but that wasn't a card that was like a, we were reviewing a set, <laughs> right? Like, right. You know, people weren't making grand predictions about the card. But what's interesting is some of the most broken draw spells have been the least heralded. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Jace the Mind Sculptor, what got? I'll be honest, it was one of the, it's one of two cards in my since I've been doing vintage set reviews that I completely overlooked as mm-hmm. being vintage playable. The other being MP the Warrens. Um, but I mean that card got very little attention as a you know like from people and when cards came I remember when Factor Fiction was released the the uh, you may remember this Kevin but the main vintage website was B Dominia and the response on B Dominia was this is an overcasted impulse right I mean and then of course there are cards like Tazeret when they came out were very well heralded and mm-hmm. proportionate to the amount of play those cards see so so I mean like there have been big teases. Uh, completely overlooked cards, and then cards that everyone knew were going to be big and were big, in mm-hmm. fact. So which category do you think this falls into? This is the big tease. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I figured as much. So let, let's talk about, okay, so I think you've already addressed one aspect of the card, which is that it has an ability when a certain set of conditions are satisfied, and then it does something else even if they aren't. Mm-hmm. In effect, it has threshold, except it has threshold at the condition of 20 cards being three X thresholds. <laughs> yeah. So trip, triple threshold. <laughs> so what anyone who's evaluating this card in a vintage context needs to basically consider that part of the cost. You need yes. to, you've, you've put it to me uh, um, outside of the podcast. You've put it to me in terms of how would you, how would you cost the effect of getting 20 cards into your graveyard? It has yes. a, a calculable yes. so cost. Let's, let's step back before we go there. First question is, and this is where I highlight the approach it. You know, we've identified the casting costs is playable and vintage. Yep. Second question, from my view, is um, if the condition is satisfied, is this card playable? Is this card playable? Drawing three cards is about as good as it gets. It's one of the best cards in vintage. Clearly playable. Then the question becomes, how often and how consistently can we satisfy this condition? And that gets <laughs> at the point that you're, right. you're addressing is, how, what does it take to get 20 cards into a graveyard? And how do you, if you could put a mana cost to that, what is that mana cost worth? There are some specific examples. Glimpse of, not glimpse. Glimpse the unthinkable. Glimpse the unthinkable, thank you, is two mana to get ten. So, and it's blue black. It's blue black, yeah, gold. which is more than just two mana, actually. Yeah. As pr- See our conversation Invented. about meddling mage <laughs> yes. from, from prior podcasts. So 
let's say you, you had the opportunity to glimpse yourself twice. It's two cards and four mana just to get to that point. Right. If you graft that onto the cost of this card, it starts to not look like a very good deal, even if you do actually end up drawing three cards. Right. So, so assuming the, the you're point, not going to do it that the way. The point is that 20 cards into the graveyard has a tremendous cost. Even those that, decks... We, we can we can... How do we figure that cost? We can look at analogous cards. Yep. We can. I think you also need to, in evaluating this card, and this this is a card I've gotten a lot of questions about already. You need to just keep in mind two simple facts. One, you start the game with zero cards in your graveyard. Two, you start the game with seven cards in your hand. Mm -hmm. So even if you could dump your entire hand in the graveyard on turn one mm -hmm. with like a Lion's Eye Diamond, you still won't even be halfway there. Right. So, even if you abuse all the free cyclers we have available to us, there simply aren't enough to reliably get even halfway there. Yeah. I mean, 20 cards, it takes an enormous amount of resources. Enormous. Mm -hmm. To get, I think the most generous and conservative estimate is just like double glimpse. Which, I mean, <laughs> even that's four mana and two in, in four colored mana. Right. Even Dredge, which is a graveyard-based deck, designed to maximize the number of cards in graveyards, still doesn't reach 20 all the time, even by turn two sometimes. Turn, and, and Dredge does that in the middle of its second turn. That are, you can't quantify right. packing your deck with ten Dredgers, four Bazaars, and... Forgoing having mana. And forgoing having mana, you needing to use Serum Powders to find your Bazaars. Right. And also the need to... Um, to sacrifice draw steps mm -hmm. and basically throw away cards from your hand. So the cost in that is basically like, let's see, you can, like, uh, 20 cards in your deck, uh, you lose your your first land drop, right? and you lose... Uh, you lose multiple cards out of your hand. Your hand like Several minus cards. three cards out of your hand at well, least. At least see, three, the first, sure. The first is minus three, and the second activation is minus three, and then you also lose your draw step. So it's basically like right. <laughs> minus seven... <laughs> Yeah, to, so to the that, point where that mana cost, I would gladly pay four to do all that. To the point where, even if Dredge had this card and reliably had it in hand and reliably had the undiscovered paradise to play it, they're still not even buying back what they've spent. Right, you have to go from a situation of seven cards in hand, zero cards in the library, to twenty cards in your sorry, zero cards in graveyard, to twenty cards in your graveyard. It takes enormous resources yep. to transfer those cards from your library. Resources in terms of mana cost, resources in terms of uh, opportunity cost, which is probably the most important here, right? And resources in terms of like protecting and facilitating all of it. It's just like a, a pie in the sky dream to be able to hope to, in any, you know, modest time frame to be able to get three cards out of this. Basically, any deck that was capable of uh, capable of achieving that is much better off just being a graveyard based combo deck. Yeah. Than than you know, to focus on playing this card. The, the new Jace, it takes two activations of that <laughs> ability. Right. So it's just five about mana the, and two turns. <laughs> yeah, and then you could get. Can he even do that twice right in a row? He probably can't. Let me see if yeah, I can bring I him up. I think it's minus zero. Oh right, so he can he can yeah. mill for free. Yeah. So I I think though that um, so the, I guess the first question and uh, not the analysis question but the practical question is is this card playable? Um, I would have to say um, uh, very unlikely, but remote. And I think that I think maybe people are looking at this the wrong way. I think that like if if you're looking at this to get your burst out of it, that's probably the wrong way of looking at it. I think that it's probably like a, a two of, or like a two of card if you're going to use it somewhere, and probably not in vintage, and probably not in legacy. But it's but if it shows up, it's going to be one of those cards that like you have two of. 
and you just hope that you know when you when you draw it most of the time it's going to be cycle right and, but on the rare occasions that you get the three out of it well congratulations i don't even know how often in your experience kevin do vintage decks that aren't dredge have 20 cards in their graveyard it's pretty infrequent pretty infrequent. I'm, I'm picturing darn rare i'm pre- i'm picturing all of the ogmos wills i've ever played and i can't picture but one or two times in, in my career that Yawgmoth's Will has had that many cards at its disposal. That's just really rare. 20 cards. I mean, I'm thinking like back in 2003 and 4 Psychotog. Psychotog when mirrors. You like, <laughs> when you were like, yeah, and you're like intuitioning, you might have had like 15, 16, 17, 18. Right. Back when really pushing it. Back when you wanted a bunch of accumulated knowledges in your graveyard. Yeah. So the deck did do that sometimes. And That's still really pushing And maybe it. in the BBS era when you had factor fictions, I've seen you're filling your graveyard. I've filled their graveyard. In the late, late, late game, though. When they've got, like, yeah, I mean, even, like, when you just, like, work stacked out everything and, right. like, the boards have been rolled away. It just It just seems, I, I can't think, I guess the question then is, okay, supposing it does take resources, what's the most efficient way? to get this trip threshold. And that's why I was getting about the graveyard combo aspect, is the most efficient way is probably to have some kind of engine that mm-hmm. gets you there, at which point, if you've got an engine, you might as well be a graveyard-based combo right. deck. Right, this, not, is, this doesn't really This do card doesn't have the incremental it might value. As well, it might as well say, draw 10 cards. <laughs> you're going to get more value out of having some deep analysis in your deck if you're a graveyard-based engine kind of deck than you are out of this card. I think, I think Wizards... Missed an opportunity here. It could have been a, little, a bit more aggressive. I think that they could have said, like, if you have ten cards in your graveyard, it would that's have, achievable. It would have much more synergy with the new Jays. Yeah. In Type 2, at least. Or maybe they could have said, like, you know, if they were concerned about that, and I don't know why they would be. I mean, it seems to me like they have Cruel Ultimatum with seven mana. The new Jays cost five, and it takes two turns, you know, and you can play it on turn six, right? Why not say something like, if you have 13 cards in your graveyard, mm-hmm. that way it's like the new Jays plus like a couple other spells. Fetch lands. Like, yeah. yeah, or like 13, 14, 15, but 20 just seems, I mean, that's just it seems, so impossible. seems overly safe, you're right. It's, it's a bit conservative. And if you've got a spell like that, I mean, why not really tease us and say like, draw six? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, like, I mean, the the card might, like I said, it might as well say draw ten cards. Well, and if that's, you have twenty cards, that's part of the well. tease aspect. Is the fact that it costs one is a misnomer. Basically, you you could yeah. have made it cost three, <laughs> and it draws two cards normally, or six if you have if you have yeah. triple threshold. There's yeah. a card where you can use both halves of it, like yeah. divination style. I mean, there is definitely something to be said for the simplicity and elegance of the way they did it. But I think 20 is just too many cards. Right. <laughs> you know, the more I think about it, as we're discussing M12 in general, there are so many cards in this this iteration of the core set that are really meta. They're really much more advanced in their implementation than it might first mean? theme. Well, you and I have set up the things we're going to talk about, and we immediately hit in on the sundial. Yeah, let's not... Let's I know, not we don't want to jump to that, but the yeah. point is that card plus the white enchantment that prevents damage on your turn... Plus, there was one other card that's... These cards are just not simple core, core concepts. These are advanced right. concepts. Let's move on to the next card. Well, next up I have on our list is Master Thief. Okay, why don't you read the, the card text before we... Yeah, this one is... For those who are following along, this is the, the Sower of Temptation imitation. 
it's blue, blue, two. Blue, blue, two. Creature, human, rogue. It's a two, two. When Master Thief enters the battlefield, gain control of target artifact as long as you control Master Thief. So basically, you take Sore of Temptation, you move, remove the flying, and change creature to artifact, and you've got this Master Thief. So going back to our our rigor, basically, of how you analyze these cards for type one. What's, is the casting class playable? Absolutely. Clearly, I yeah. Mean, we've got, so what cards in Vintage currently see play at that casting cost? Jace Sower the does. Mind's Sculptor Sower is does. the biggest. Yep. Jace the Mind Sculptor, Sower of Temptation. Sower of Temptation has dropped off a bit in terms of play. It's a niche card, but when it comes yeah. in, it's good. Are there any other four casting cost blue spells that sort of see a decent amount of play? Well, I mean, not, that's, that's a casting cost that actually is... Um, it's on the, it's blue, on the blue, edge. Blue Blue 2 is a casting cost that is... You kind of have to be really at top power level, you know, like... Absolutely. Like, so, or... So, the casting cost does see play, but it's... I don't expect this card to be a four of by any stretch. It'll be a it'll serve a similar role to Sower. Is that also that casting cost? But it's very rarely rarely played. cast for that. Uh, yeah. uh, factor fiction and gifts are similar. Those are but, both yeah. and both re- restricted. So but those are both different because very different. Three and a blue. You can power them out in very different scenarios. Right, like so, Crypt, Mox, Land. But y- but this is a the point is that this is a playable casting cost. Right, and that's the important thing. So what's what's the what what's are the, the core pump? features of this well, card? It's a two two power. It's two power, right? So you're basically not playing this card for its power. Yeah, it, it might as well be an enchantment. It's <laughs> for steel, all it's steel artifact. It yep. is steel artifact on a creature. Right, which makes it just marginally better, marginally more marginally more utility than steel artifact. Yes, because it's the sower of temptation is what sower of temptation was to control magic. Exactly, this you card can is the steel artifact. You can threaten your opponent's life total a little. You can threaten their jace. You can do a little bit of things when you have a 2-2 that you can't with an enchantment. So my question is, what's this comparable to? And I have in mind two cards that are comparable. One is Thada Adele. Similar. The other is Magus Magus of the Unseen. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Um, Magus of the Unseen, for for anyone who might not know it, is an Ice Age, originally, creature for two that has a tap ability to basically ray of command an artifact until end of well, turn. Well, people might not know what ray of command is. <laughs> well, so <laughs> you're, you untap and gain control of target artifact until end of turn. That's what Magus does. And it sees play because of, well, there's a small there's several corner cases, but it sees play because of two big reasons. One of them is Time Vault, and the other one is Tinker, basically. Yes. And lately, Lightsteel Colossus. So Magus has shown up in some fish decks and some sideboard of some yeah, other blue-based decks to threaten those cards and to also make your opponent put them in awkward situations where they don't want to play their winning artifact. If this card cost three mana and was a 1-1, would it be better? Absolutely. I would gladly sacrifice that casting cost. What what will we be taking with this card? <laughs> I mean, obviously Time Vault and Golem are the two most strategically important right. artifacts in the format. But if this card becomes something of a sideboard card or, oh, or Blight's a staple... It will take proportionately fewer time vaults, I think, as players are prepared for yeah. it. Players won't run their time vault out there quite as much as they might today if this card becomes popular. But Blightsteel Colossus, now that's a very interesting case. Yeah, but that doesn't, this just is inferior to Sower for that function. Well, yes and no, in the sense that it's a Sower that it can also threaten your opponent's time vault. Right. Yes. Yeah. So sower takes. Because sower takes golem too. What yeah. What are you giving up by playing this over sower? You're basically giving up the ability to steal dark confidants yes. in today's environment. Yes. That's one of the primary targets for yes. sower, and what do you as gain? as featured in the the last vintage champs, where Owen 
sideboarded in his uh, sewers in the mirror and took Bob's Bob. (laughs) So anyway, what are you giving up, you you say? What are you taking is another way of of what artifact, non-creature artifact, are you taking for this card? I would say you gain the ability to... You get, get more. You, you gain more marginal utility than you do over sower. Because again, it was sower. You're bringing so you it in take for a key. right. You can you take, take a soul key, ring. You can take a random ring. mox if but you feel like it. But you're not taking the top. Uh, no one's no. gonna let you take their top. <laughs> that's that's true. It's hard to remove a top in general. <laughs> I, I'm that just, card is silly. <laughs> I think while it won't be the reason to bring it in, it is a marginal increase in value over sower in some matchups and some games that you can take you can get incremental value out of it. If you're bringing in two or three of this guy, which I'm not advocating, but if you bring in multiples, the ability to have multiple targets is pretty attractive. If you have draw two in your opening hand, for instance, which you wouldn't want, but you can still shell one out there to take a mox if it if it's truly going to disrupt your opponent and still have one back to take that blight steal. I just, I don't know if this card is any better than, like, Trinket Mage. You know, like, it's, I mean... I just don't see tremendous value in taking an opponent's artifact as opposed to a destroying it or finding one mm-hmm. of your own. Because in many cases, a card you're going to be stealing, you could just as easily have fetched out of your own deck. Like, oh, you, they have a soul ring, I'll take the right. mine. Wouldn't you be able to say the same exact thing about Sower, though? No, because Sower of Temptation is tactically important against decks like Fish. And... You think it's more valuable to take a Tarmogoyf than it is to pack efficient removal for say. You need to get rid of their Tarmogoyf and then kill them with your... Yeah, it's like a form of removal. Wouldn't whereas, you say... Whereas, like, yeah. Wouldn't you say, by that same corollary, since workshop aggro decks are much more common than fish these days, that this guy is better than Sower because he's going to be such a beating against a workshop aggro deck? Well, I don't think Sower is really that great against workshop aggro anyway. Maybe Expensive. that's why Sower has disappeared somewhat. Expensive. Yeah. He gets around Thorin, but he, does, he doesn't. But, but he does cost five against the Lodestone Golem, which is Trigon no slouch. about the top of the curve you've heard. Oh, that's very good. Play. In fact, that's a very good comparison for this card is Trigon. Yeah. Which Would you rather just destroy it? Or, this every card's turn. not better than Trigon. No, that's a very it's good point. Not. Well, and Trigon definitely, definitely made its place in the Vintage Champs last year. I'm just, I just, I don't think, I, I think that, like, Thada Adele and Magus Lansin and, and this are just all better than this card. This could have been more aggressively costed. I think it could have been, like, blue-blue-one and still been a 2-2. Two, two. I have a feeling that type 2 was part of the reason that that wasn't very more I'm aggressively costed. I'm virtually completely ignorant about type 2. <laughs> well, so. the simple fact is, is artifacts are a key part of type 2 right now. And someone playing their sword and then get it stolen for three is probably something they wanted to avoid. Gotcha. It's not out of the question, but... Uh, I don't think this card will see any play in Vintage. So I'm Okay. Well, if it does, it'll be very niche. One or two in a sideboard for a specific environment. But you're right. It, the more I think about it, the, the ability to Even repeatedly the destroy. Mirror, would you want this? I mean, like, the, I mean, like, <laughs> right. you know, like the best possible matchup. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, you wouldn't. It's just a little too much. What's our next card? Well, all right, Master Thief. That's fine. Let's talk about Jace Three. Ooh, Jace Three. Right. All right. So let's, so start let's start see. Let's casting. talk about the casting cost. So. Is this ca- okay? Casting cost is blue, blue three. Is this casting and you cost played? Pay, pay. <laughs> right, <laughs> as opposed to force of will. So, is this casting cost played? Absolutely. 
Tezzeret the Seeker is the big one. Is the poster child for that casting cost. <laughs> right. In fact, now that I think about it, the and last probably, card before Tezzeret was probably Morphling, right? That's what I'm thinking. At that casting cost. That's what I was thinking. And there, there's a many-year gap in the middle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I mean, and Tezzeret is ridiculously powerful. So there's a reason it's he's playing. It finds right. and activates... And protects the time vault. Right. So, so it's, he's a one-man show, Tezzeret. And wins the game. Yeah. What, do you consider Jace even remotely close to him well, in that regard? Let's let's go through this card, this new Jace, the Jace Memory Adept. Why don't you read the stats, first of all? Okay. Three colorless, blue-blue, Planeswalker Jace. Four loyalty to start with. Plus one loyalty, draw a card. Target player puts the top card of his or her library into her, his or her graveyard. Plus zero loyalty. Target player puts the top ten cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. Minus seven loyalty. Any number of target players each draw 20 cards. All right, so let's... So let's... we've got a plus one, a zero, and a minus seven, which right. means we're four turns or three turns away, uh, four depending on how you count, from ultimate when we play this guy. Right. But we can do and the milling and drawing as much as we want. I think as we know from the 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 uh, Planeswalkers that have seen play in mm-hmm. Vintage, that the top abilities are the most important. I mean, the ultimates are not irrelevant by no. any stretch of the imagination. Tezzeret and Jace's ultimates are relevant. They're relevant, but they're by far the least important right. abilities. They're the things that, yeah, are, can you can do without. Right, so I think we should begin our analysis with the f- first two abilities. Draw a card for plus one. Target now, player puts top card in his or her library in his or graveyard. Let's talk about comparison to Jace the Mind Sculptor for just a it's moment. It's just straight inferior to Brainstorming. It's obviously I mean, inferior, but it is still card advantage over time. It so is it card advantage over time. A certain, a certain threshold. And the same is true with Tezzeret. Tezzeret is card advantage over time. And you can start fetching out Moxin immediately. Sure. So in some ways, that ability is actually... So Tezzeret's first ability is, remind me again... His is the, the untapped, untapped two, two artifacts, right? Right. It's, That's it's his plus, plus ability. And then the, the minus ability is the search. I mean, so obviously he untaps the time vault. But putting aside time vault, th- this is a better plus one ability than Tetheret. Agreed. It's also arguably a better plus one ability than the one on Jace, the Mind Sculptor, but clearly inferior to Brainstorming. <laughs> <laughs> right. You don't need Jace's Brainstorming ability to be a plus. The fact that it's a zero is the critical aspect. Right. I so. mean, I'm not saying Fate Seal is nothing to... Tr- you know, it has its uses. It's good. Right. It's it can be surprisingly good, but drawing cards is better than fate sealing. So let's talk. I think, I, I think the Maybe pivotal wrong, the but. pivotal ability of this Jace though is the milling ability. We've already right. had a fair conversation well, about the value I, of milling in Type One. This this plus one ability is also strange because it then says it's not just draw a card. You need to mill one card. Right. So you can draw. It could be you know with the Sensei's top. You can dig two cards immediately. Oh, that's a good comparison. So you can, you know, you can really get through some things and build your graveyard, like get through junk. But you don't know which card you're going to want unless you have a top or something like that. Right. And are Is you there gonna, any way to do are that? Are you going to mill your opponent? Is there any strategy in Type 1 <laughs> which, that legitimately... Which, that's a serious risk. Yeah. It is. It really is. Uh, um, it might be, you know, this is a kind of funny thing, like, you know, like the Goblin Welder or something, milling your opponent isn't the worst. But then... You probably are going to mill your opponent because of this second ability. I mean, if you but I if you know. want to use that, let's talk about the second ability. Would you use this on an opponent? And if so, under what circumstances? The only, in my opinion, the only way to use this, the only a reason to use this on your opponent is if you're you trying to make it your your primary <laughs> path to victory. 
if milling your opponent is your primary path to victory. Otherwise, it's far too dangerous in, in this format, I think. There are I'll just mill so, you! <laughs> there are just so many cards. <laughs> Thank you! Now I can win. Exactly. Young Moswell. See our previous comments about the value of milling in Type 1. If you're going to try and do this to yourself, you're much better off having some kind of engine that just makes it all happen as much as you want. Ten Doing cards it ten cards at a time is just kind of just deadly. the wrong amount. <laughs> all right. Well, let's assume you're milling yourself. Okay. <laughs> because that seems more likely. Okay. Agreed. What... I mean, unless you're just trying to get lucky and, like, hit their tendrils and Yawgmaw's will at the same time. No. What What are you going to... What? How could you design a deck to really make take advantage of that? You're going to play Crucible, let's say, Deep Analysis, <laughs> maybe a Recoup, Goblin Welders. You're just going to try and get value out of it, in my opinion. If, in that case, is, is that better than Tezzeret the Seeker? Or Tezzeret the... What's the second Tezzeret? Agent of Bolas. Agent of Bolas, right. Is that better... Because this, what's the ability on Tezzeret Agent of Bolas is, but his, his uh, plus ability is to is to get you a card, to get you an artifact in the top five. If it, you have an artifact, right, in the top five. which you usually will. This is will. another way of digging. It's one more mana, but with the Goblin Welder, you can just dig. You know, it's like are 10. you referring to the you're referring to the minus ten? Or I'm yeah. sorry, the the milling ten. Yeah. If you have an active Goblin <laughs> Welder. Yes, that's the sort of card you would put in a deck like this, and ten cards is enough, if you construct the deck properly, to reliably get, quote-unquote, lucky. Is this the new engine engine of a new uh, Slaver deck? Highly unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> Just completely highly unlikely. <laughs> yeah, there are, if, you're, if you're trying to go for incremental milling, you already have Thirst for Knowledge, Frantic Search, and Factor Fiction. That's careful study. And careful study, and strategic planning, and... You, and and you simply have so many cards already that facilitate incremental milling. In my view, this card's playability hinges on the second ability. Absolutely. Because the ultimate doesn't matter. The first is clearly okay. It's mm -hmm. good enough. But the question is, is this ability good? And what you seem to be saying, you seem, in terms of uh, milling your opponent, terrible. Yep. In terms of milling yourself, really not enough utility. And there are other cards that will do it much more better in a much more surgical <laughs> In strategic fashion. How does this card... Let me let me ask this. How does this card compare to the first chase? Which is better? <laughs> We're talking specifically about Vintage? Yes. I would say the first chase is definitely better in Vintage. Remind me what the first chase's second ability is. Because the so, first one's draw a card. Uh, the, his first ability is everyone draws a card. Oh. Plus one for that. His okay. second ability is you draw, draw a, card a card for minus one. Right. So he's good for a couple of cards by himself. And then if you feel like making your opponent draw, you can get two more cards out of the deal. I feel like he's about comparable. They should both. This should cost. Well, they're comparable. In, I agree. They're comparable in the sense that neither are going to see play. <laughs> <laughs> I would play Jace one over Jace three if I had to. If I had to play with one arm tied behind my back. Jace memory adept. Yeah, sorry. I think that he's safe. Jace. One of, one of our teammates' first response to this card was, Safe Jace is safe, <laughs> because he's just not going to break type 2, and that's really what they were going for, I think. What was the, the name, full name? Just the other one was Jace Bellerin. Yeah, Jace just, one just Jace Bellerin. Bellerin. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I think we can move on. This let's move on to a card. Let's move on to a card that will see play in Buried Ruin. Ooh. So Buried Ruin is Landa. a land, the only new unique land in M12, and it reads as follows. Tap, add one colorless to your mana pool, or two colorless and tap, sacrifice buried ruin, return target artifact from your graveyard to your hand. Well, I think the flavor text 
sort of hints at this place, this card's place <laughs> in magic. History has buried its treasures deep. <laughs> right. So and this is definitely a, a card for the historical formats. That you're right. Eternal. That, uh, artifacts are obviously omnipresent in Type 1. There are archetypes that only play with artifacts and lands. There are Most of the blue-based decks have at least one artifact-based win condition, those that aren't pure combo decks. Okay, so and other artifacts are peppered with importance throughout. This card doesn't have a casting cost, but do lands that tap for a colorless see play in Vintage? Absolutely they do. We've got, All the time. Well, let's, let's highlight the ones that do. Wasteland, Strip Mine. Right. Spring to Mine. What else? Uh, At this point... Is Cavi Ruins tap for colorless? It taps for colorless, yes. Yeah, so it sees some play. After you get past Wasteland and Strip Mine, which go into several archetypes, you're basically... After that, you're talking about corner case lands that see play in mud today. Those so being... The tap for one colorless. The tap for one colorless. Those being Rishidan Port, yep. Ghost Quarter... Yep. Um, Mistress Factory is Mistress the Factory is the other example. And occasionally... Gemstone Caverns taps for a colorless. <laughs> right. Occasionally Crystal Vein. But really, the big three you're comparing this to are Port, Factory... taps for a colorless. <laughs> Port, Factory, and... What was the other one I missed? Um, Ghost Quarter. Ghost Quarter. Yeah. It's also worth comparing to City of Traders, since City of Traders is currently on the bubble more often than not in mud mana bases. Mm -hmm. So in your modern mud deck, you start off with your four workshops, your four wastelands, and your strip mine, and your academy. Usually three or four ancient tombs go in against those, at which point you get to the flexible lands in a modern mud deck. Usually two to four lands in addition to that. Uh, maybe more than that. I'm, I'm, I don't have a list right in front of me, but some people use City of Traders in, a, in quantities of two to four. Some people use Mishra's Factories in those quantities. Richard Import sees play in those quantities, two to four, and <clears throat> some Ghost Quarters as well. In my opinion, there is no doubt that this card is immediately going to, to join the ranks of the modern Mud mana base, starting probably at minimum two, and in some cases, people might test it up to four, but that'll probably prove to be too many. So I think this has a place right amongst those other lands we've listed. And then the question is, how does it, how well does it integrate into the rest of the deck? Interesting. Um, I think that this card is, I agree with you, this will see play in Vintage. So this, mm -hmm. is, this is, is the first matter, Vintage playable. Absolutely. The question is, what frequencies and where? It's the relevant question. Um, I think that um, this card is potentially. I mean, it, it's it's interesting. It's really good in mud because you don't have welders, and so this performs that function. Yep. Um, it's also enormously powerful with crucible. So it's you know, you you can use it to get back any artifact you want. What I think this is probably best in a workshop control deck rather than a workshop aggro deck because the workshop aggro decks want to focus their mana on accelerating out their threats, not recurring threats. They usually a workshop aggro deck. You destroy my threat, okay? I'm just gonna put on another, right? This is a much more of a late game, get a little bit of value type of card in, a, right. in an aggro deck. It beats it beats counter spells. It also makes like letting a crucible resolve much more dangerous. Oh yeah. For a control deck, it does. There are many control decks who will look at that Crucible and say, is Strip Mine anywhere in sight? If not, this Crucible is not a problem. I have my basic islands. I'm protected from the recurring wastelands to a degree. I can play around a Crucible. If this card suddenly comes out, 
if the ruins plus the crucible come to play, then you're talking about a much more powerful strategic impact and diminishing the value of your counter magic and your removal entirely. Mm-hmm. I also think this card is critical in the workshop mirror. Now, it's worth noting that Crucible is already a serious beating in the Workshop Mirror to begin with because it smooths your mana and threatens theirs at the same time. So it's there are some who might say that this card is win more if you already have Crucible in the Workshop Mirror, but I would say why not play a land like that if it's going to just improve your matchups across the board? And so that, to me, is the relevant question about its inclusion in Workshops, at least, is is this card obvious does it does it improve every matchup what are you sacrificing by taking out your mishra's factory or your rishadden port or your couple of city of traders for example well i think port is really important in those control decks uh i think in fact that's probably one of the best cards in those workshop control decks by the way when i say workshop control i usually mean like stacks right um i think that uh you can't I'm not sure if those Mish- those, work- those decks use Mishra's Factory, but I, this might be a replacement for Mishra's Factory. They do in small quantities, in my experience. The control decks? The control decks will have one or two, hmm. but basically for finishers, similar to the role that this card would play. You can't let this card interfere with your mana base at all, but it's certainly, like, an, it, it doesn't replace, like, an Ancient Tomb if you were to run it. No, agreed. But this card definitely is worthy of inclusion. It will it will infringe on the number of City of Traders in some cases. This is a, a really unusual card to get back a smokestack without needing a welder. Right. That's just too it's, important it's by itself. It's huge. You, I mean, it's almost like if you open the game with Mishra's Workshop Crucible and you have this card, but you need two mana to activate it, but you're going to be the winner in the long run. Oh, yeah. I have played enough stacks games to know that there's a very, very powerful tension between when you let your smokestack go and it, your expectation of having another one. Hmm. There, I've lost many a game by letting it go too early. Hmm. I've lost many a game by forcing it to go too late into the game, and hmm. I wasn't able to recover fast enough. This card really smooths over that issue. Even if you don't have Crucible, if you have access to this card in a moderate quantity, two to four, you have much more flexibility in how you manage your resources when it comes to sacrificing your own permanence and to managing the power of your own smokestack. Right. Unfortunately... Right now, I say unfortunately, as a right. fan of Smokestack, Smokestack's the, bad. the Stacks archetype is is very much underrepresented compared to Mud these days. So it makes sense. I mean, the, the the threats are just so much better than. The, I mean, Smokestack is a card that comes into play, does nothing. Does nothing. You wait a turn. Your turn does and it destroys does a land. For it does four, nothing on your next turn either. For four mana and two turns, it destroys a land. Yeah, not um, not terribly exciting. If Smokestack had its day, and that day is not right now. Yeah. This card, so. It's an interesting corollary question, though. Do you think this card helps stacks more or helps mud more? Well, well, I I distinguish workshops between workshop aggro and workshop control. Right. And then workshop combo. I think this clearly helps workshop control. This is a stacks card. Um, I agree. And that's what I was just saying a few minutes ago. I just think that... Um, I think that this card is even still playable in multicolor workshop decks. I mean, you can... Because they run Crucible. Right. Some even have run Three. crop rotation. Oh, I thought you were talking about the number of crucibles. Yeah. yeah. And the crop rotation. So, I mean, this card can work well with Welder, too. In a workshop deck that has access to, say, Demonic Tutor and Vampiric Tutor, mm-hmm. this card would work very well as a one-of. Yeah. Um, this is a good workshop card. I think 
And just because it's better in workshop control doesn't mean it won't see play in workshop aggro either. I think you're right. Workshop combo. I mean, Forge Master sacrifices, you know, like... Yeah, that's a very good point. And some workshop decks which are heavily reliant on Metalworker, for example, Mm -hmm. if that Metalworker gets countered on turn one, you have the ability to put it back in your hand on turn two and maybe get back into the game that you might not have otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you go... uh, Turn two, Crucible, Ancient Tomb. Uh, I guess you you have to play that land, and the next turn you can Ancient Tomb bring back your worker and play it. Yeah, yeah. it's not fast, but it's. I it mean, provides you with some redundancy. This card is just really strong potential source of card advantage, and yeah. I know that Crucible already gives you the card advantage, but this translates Crucible's card advantage into any card in your graveyard. Right. There have I have. Played plenty of game in the past where I had Crucible online for many turns, and all that happened was I ended up with a whole bunch of lands in play. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this card lets you battle. translate one resource into another, which is fantastic. Yeah. And now Mono Brown can get its artifacts back in a very efficient way, which historically has just been the realm of Welder. So this card can help fight counter spells, um, not very quickly, but it will do it. What do you think about this card in blue decks? Um, hmm. Academy Ruins has seen play. Our teammate, Brian DeMars, has has wedged in Academy Ruins into some vintage control decks in the past. I think that one of the reasons people like Brian like Academy Ruins is an anti-decking measure. It does provide an element that's of... That's why we use it in lands. Universal, yeah, absolutely. It provides a one-card answer to certain scenarios. What, did we, what else did we get back with in lands? What were we doing? We were getting O-Stone back in Legacy. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. How insane would that be here? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you have plenty of mana. It's just going to go straight into your hand. You don't have to lose your draw step either. That's a good point. This card is an automatic inclusion in Legacy lands, isn't it? If that was a deck right now, you would be right. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> that deck is nowhere to be seen on the Legacy landscape at the moment. But in the Maybe long term, sure. Maybe this card would change it. That. I mean, you can get back the O-Stone immediately and just yeah. and bust it. So I don't know. We'll see. So buried ruin to sum up, definitely playable. Vintage playable. Vintage playable. Great in legacy. Could really help lands in legacy. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's talk about. We talked about Jace three. Let's talk about Chandra three. <laughs> so this is a card. I'm gonna have to open this one up. Three Chandras. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and unbeknownst to most people, uh, <laughs> they, I think they finally did though really amp up the power of this Chandra to the point where I think we should talk about it relative to Eternal. So, it's a three red casting cost planeswalker, Chandra. So let's talk about before the abilities. Let's talk about right. that casting cost. Then, what do you think about three colorless and a red? Well, there have been spells at that casting cost which have seen play in vintage historically. Um, chief among them being Flame Tongue Kavu as mm-hmm. a vintage control sideboard card. Yep. I think even Brian was a fan of that card for a while. Had its place. Psychotog sideboards. Yeah, it would just nail like some fish cards and it's like a double removal spell. Right. I think the Fire Imp is probably better now. Um, and of course Flame Fusillade in the brief mm-hmm. <laughs> the brief lived combo days it had. For lots of love on Flame Fusillade, go back and listen to episode one. Are there any other spells at that casting cost that have seen play in Vintage? You know, only other one I... Th- thought of at one point was Ruination. I don't know if that saw a little bit of play, but um, I, I really can't think of one. I don't think that it's it's probably been three or four years 
since a spell of that casting cost has seen play in Vintage. But we know it's possible. The trick is... is ruination. Hasn't there been anything else? Well, what do you expect? That casting cost isn't exactly the most facilitating. It's not blue. Made a looking gatherer. Right. I think you yourself said once a while back that aside from blue cards and artifacts, the highest casting cost that's played in Vintage is three, really. And in today's environment, that's that right. certainly holds true. I mean, there are plenty of, of red spells that cost three that see play, although we talked about... We, we talked, talked about a bunch of them when we were talking about Chaos Warp. Exactly. So, but four really is, it's rare, very rare. So, what are you getting for the four, though? Let's talk about stats. Okay. Chandra the Firebrand has starting loyalty of three. Plus one, Chandra the Firebrand deals one damage to target creature or player. Minus two... When you cast the next instant or sorcery spell this turn, copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. Minus six, Chandra the Firebrand deals six damage to each of up to six target creatures and or players. So, similar to our comparisons of Jace's from earlier in this show, let's talk about abilities one and two. Because the minus six, the ultimate is, it. there's a possibility you would use it, but it's not really the goal. So let's talk about plus one. Mm-hmm. One damage to target creature or player. To the player, pretty much inconsequential. This is weak. To the creature, the only th- thing I can think of is Bob. Dark Confidant and the occasional Welder and the occasional Noble Hierarch. This is simply not that useful. Now, there are there are some games... In control mirrors, I suppose, where your opponent has two bobs out, where this card's going to get you quick card advantage. But the fact that it costs four and bob costs two means that you're already behind the eight ball. So the real thing that interests me about this card is the ability to copy spells. Now, in any average vintage blue deck, there are plenty of spells that you would want to copy this way. And the fact that you can use it the turn it comes in is nice, except that it costs you four mana... And the odds of you playing a real meaty spell after that that you would want to copy aren't that good. If you play this and actually manage to have mana left over, odds are you're playing a one or two casting cost spell. I mean, the second ability is Fork. And, I mean, Fork sees no play in Vintage. Twin Cast sees no play in Vintage right now. That's true. That's Um, true. But it's reusable. It at least to a de- at least to a degree. I mean, you're gonna Let, the second one's gonna be a couple of, turns from now. Instead of beating around the bush and pretending like this might be playable, <laughs> let's just reimagine if we were designing this card, what would its first two abilities have to do to be playable? Like what, like what would what would the first and second ability have to be to be vintage playable? The first ability would have to kill Lodestone Golem. At a minimum. And it would have yeah. to in order for it to be playable. <laughs> I agree with it that. It would have to be straight up lightning bolt or something like Electrolyze that happens to kill Lodestone yeah. Golem. And it would be also very nice if it could kill Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. I agree. It would probably have to kill Jace, actually. I think if it, it was just lightning bolt, it would catch some Jaces unawares. So it would. It, we talked about lightning bolt being useful against Jace. It would need to be a lightning bolt. Yeah. It would probably have to be. I think it's it's second ability. We'd probably need another ability too. And the other <laughs> ability would probably have to be something like, like a ancient garage ability. Like oh destroy. wow! Well, destroying an artifact. You're right. That'd be I very think, useful. I think too. to be playable, this probably needs to be able to kill a golem, a jace, and a time bolt. 
Well, you're right. Four casting costs. A, a shatter effect mixed with a damage effect for the first two abilities would be nice. Yeah. Um, I, the only reason I was even considering discussing this card was because the second ability is card advantage and can be lots of card advantage in some contexts. But if you're just copying simple things like preordains and gushes, it's card advantage. Yeah. But the, the fact is... Cost fell. I mean, Fork doesn't even see... Fork. Right. Well, and the other fact is is that you could do this to turn it comes down, but then her loyalty is one, which means you're right. just doing one damage to something and next turn, and you've got to wait every other turn. It's like thawing glaciers. you have to do this the top one twice. If you want her to live. If you want her to live through two... Copies, right, two and forks. you're never going to get to the ultimate. Yeah, so. the ultimate, you might as well kiss goodbye. <laughs> right. Well, and there's no surprise that Fork doesn't see play because of its red-red casting cost. But, but Twin, twin Cast, cast is ultimately that. could be cast in this environment. It never has been. That's correct. Well, I mean, there was the Niv-Mizzet deck or whatever. I forget what that... <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? It's no, I don't. There was a uh, there was a deck where you cast you're copying. Uh, what was it? How, was how long ago was this? It was a couple of years ago. Just a couple of years ago. Well, a combo, a combo deck anyway. Yeah, and, and I don't th- I think it, didn't think it used. I don't think it used Nidmiz at the fire mine, but it used the the like the the smaller version of it. Well, I don't I don't remember. Hmm. Whatever. Well, at any rate, you hit yeah. the nail on the head. In order for this card to be playable, it would have to do much more than it does. Yes. Let's just move on, then. Let's talk about a card that also probably won't see play, and that's Azure Mage. Why are we talking about these cards that don't see play? I only brought this one up because it's a two-casting-cost <laughs> creature that can provide you card advantage similar to Dark Confidant, hmm. and it's blue. So it's a blue creature that can provide card advantage, which means a base blue deck wouldn't necessarily need to dip into black in order to get that kind of advantage out of a creature. So this card is a blue one creature, Human Wizard. Wizard's important. And it has an activated ability, three and a blue, draw a card. Its body is 2-1. So, first, one and a blue, two casting cost, blue spells. Does, is that a, a, a two casting cost creature that's blue? Do those see play in vintage? Sure. Which ones can you name right now that see play? Well, that are just blue. That are, are just blue is actually kind of tricky. You don't say just blue, but we can start there. Void Mage Prodigy. Orange Prodigy sees play in Nat Moses Wizard deck. In, in a Wizard deck a wizard that deck. sees play, yep. Um, then there's there are some one casting cost creatures that occasionally see play, like Stormscape Apprentice and Curse Catcher. Let's stick with two. One casting cost. The, no, two casting cost. I'm sorry, two casting cost blue is actually part of the reason I brought this up is because it's actually somewhat unique. It should be there a are, played spell. I there mean, are plenty. Well, there are plenty Cloud of spells. Of seed play. It's in, in Doomsday Combo. <laughs> there, are, there are plenty of non creatures at this right, casting cost. Right, but there should be. Course. I mean, that's a very sweet spot. I mean, like it's it's well, and that's, a mox and a land. But that's what I'm getting at. Is that so this there card no, is there no blue creatures? That cost has the play? potential to fill a void. That it, I think the short answer is very few. Narcomiba. Narcomiba. <laughs> that's but that's, that's never sad. cast. Well, it is. It's sad that in the history of amazing blue cards, a two casting cost creature just simply isn't among them these days. That really blows my mind. Now that I think about it. Well, how can there not be a blue one casting cost spell creature <laughs> in vintage that doesn't see play? I mean, the history of Magic. In Legacy, you've got the Merfolk deck, which is Lord of Atlantis, Atlantis, and you've got um, Silvergill Adept at that casting cost. All right, I can think of one. Rootwater Thief has seen play. Seven years ago. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> that thing's yeah. a wizard, too, right? Uh, Merfolk. I don't Merfolk. think it's a wizard. Oh, you're right. It may have been changed. but Well, so, uh, okay, so the point this, is... The, actually, there, what you've just hit on there is actually one of the primary reasons why this caught my eye. Which is interesting, because where you... 
we're typically trying to draw analogs, and you're saying, well, this is filling a gap. Right, right. This is a gap filler. It's a gap that also fills an analog, though, because it has some analogy to Dark Confidant in the, the fact that it's a two-casting-cost creature that gets you card advantage. It has an advantage in being blue. It has a severe disadvantage in being bad. <laughs> <laughs> wait, so, wait, what card are we talking about? No, Azure Mage, because, <laughs> because you, just like our conversation about Chandra, the fire yeah. mine, or the firebrand, I mean, you are so rarely going to have an expendable four mana to actually make this card well, card you know advantage. What? I kind of, I kind of disagree with you. I think this card, I mean, Chandra, I don't think is playable. No. Just so I mean, we have different levels. But there's a of, different reason for that. There are different levels of usage and vintage. There's <laughs> clearly going to be format staple. Right. Uh, potentially broken, like when Mind's Desire was, you know, spoiled. Okay. Trinisphere was spoiled. We knew those cards were going to be format staple, potentially broken. Yep. Right. Then there's cards that you know are going to be heavily played. Maybe not format staple, but like, for example, Steel Sabotage. Nature's Claim. Nature's Claim, Steel Sabotage. Well, Nature's Claim is... Closer to staple, but yeah. yeah, I see your point. Then there are cards that are going to be played. And then there are cards that are playable, but may or may not see play. Right. Then there are cards that are playable, but probably won't see play <laughs> in the near future. And there are cards that are unplayable. This distinction is driving me nuts. So, <laughs> Why? So you're putting Azure Mage what? at level two or three. No, no, what like, I'm saying is Chandra play- is in the last category. Not playable. Not playable. Right. This, this card, card is, is, a, is a step above. This, this card is playable. I mean, I think just looking at the casting cost, and we haven't talked about its body, it's a 2-1 body for 2 mana. Right. Two, that's 2 power. That's That's... I mean, to me, that's as playable as is Sage of Epitier, which she's play. Right. Sage of Sage Epitier. That's another Sage hilarious example. Sage of Epitier shows up, and partly because, you know what, there actually is a blue one casting cost spell that she's playing. That card that you sneak into play, that actually costs four, but it has the the blue one thief, ninjits, ninjits. Oh, right, yeah. What's ninja of the Deep Hours. This is a card you could ninja. I mean, like, yeah, Ninja of the Deep Hours. Yeah. That's a reason why Sage of Epitier sees play. Well, is because you play Sage of Epitier. Yeah, I know. The fact that this is a <laughs> wizard is is a key part of its stats. Right. So it goes into the synergy with uh, with um, with Kai with uh, right. Void Mage Prodigy with Nat Mo's deck. Yeah, and Nat Mo's just deck just won a tournament. It's right, pretty good. Right, and he plays some cards, for lack of a better word, primarily because they're wizards. This is a blue. You know, card that goes in the, that deck. Yeah. So, and you know, that deck is always looking for more blue creatures. But whereas two casting cost is a very convenient and good casting cost in type one, it also has the problem of competing with all the other cards that are currently played at two. Meaning, yeah, do you Leon take and, and our, do you take Water, out Dark Confidant, Quasali Pride Mage, Mage Madeling Mage? Yeah. yeah. Do you take out any of those cards for this one? <sighs> I think. Uh, I, I don't think there's a clear answer to that. I think it's the answer is probably unlikely. Yeah. But I don't think it's clear. I think that I think that this the ability first of all, the body and the casting cards are playable. They they wouldn't be playable without the ability. Granted. I think the ability is borderline playable. I can definitely imagine like watching Nat play his deck, he would get some utility out of this. I don't mm-hmm. know how many times how many times you'd activate it. Now just thinking about like noble fish decks. Mm-hmm. Noble fish decks, they generally use as their blue creature like Cold-Eyed Selkie. Right. You know, and so this is not replacing Cold-Eyed Selkie. But this card gets better with with Noble Hierarch because you get more mana on the table. Right. Nat's deck really ties up the mana. He uses Stormscape Apprentice to tap, you know. And he wants to keep mana things, open for Void Mage. Keep mana open for Void Mage and he wastelands and, and stuff like that. Right. I think that if, 
I'm just wondering why they had to make this ability so expensive. I mean, if Dark Confidant exists... I think their answer is type 2. But does it have to be 4? Can it be 3? I mean, uh, couldn't it be blue and 2? I mean, does it have to be blue 3? I think that would be overpowered in the Draw standard. a card? Yeah. Draw a card? It, yeah. Keep, <laughs> what? keep in mind, the standard format is defined by the Titans still. Six, I don't know six what casting cost cards. So let's not even go there. Six casting cost six card, six card cards. Called Primal, Primeval Titan, and another card called Brave Titan. The point is, if this ability was three, you would frequently be doing it twice in a turn in type in type two right now. But there's no what, way they could have seven. <laughs> there's no way they could have made it quite that affordable. On turn seven, yes. In turn seven, that seems fine. I mean, you can play Cruel Ultimatum in turn seven in Old Standard. <laughs> I so, know. I mean, like, that's, see, you're drawing two cards. Cruel Ultimatum draws what, three? Well, don't forget that you also activated on turns two, five, and six before that. Those are not you the... You activate this on turn two? In not turn not two. Three, five, and six, I meant to say. You activate this on three, and you're drawing nothing else. Yeah. Welcome to type two. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm being glib. The point is is that that's why it can't cost three. Type two, it's far, it's far too strong I'm, for type two I mean, at three. This card is not going to see any play on Legacy. It, 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 God, I hope I don't eat my words on that one. I, I just don't see no, it. No, it won't. This card could see very, very marginal play in Vintage. I just wish that this card had a, a two or three casting cost activation. Yeah. I mean, if it had two, a two activation, I'm, I'm not, for example, if it said draw a card blue and one, I'm not even sure it would be that good. <laughs> I mean, it would be four men to draw a card, and you get a body out of it. It would you be. You can't tell me. It would be pretty good. No, I mean, there Trinket Mage gets a card. I mean, it costs three. I don't think that paying four mana to get a card is that good. Paying six mana to get two cards is not that good. Paying eight mana to get three cards is definitely not that good. It would still be more played, though. It would be definitely playable. But I don't think it would be good. Yeah. I think it would be playable, but not good. I think you'd see a certain, a certain crop of blue decks. They just run this. Decks, they just run like... this in the Bob spot. Can fetch out basic islands. It this doesn't, card, it doesn't risk your life total. Whisper. No. This card better than uh, Thoughtcast. Thoughtcast? Oh, no, <laughs> it's not. It's I not. mean, like, I'm just, this card is not, I mean, okay, what if it, okay, if it had the two casting cost activation, is this card better than Night's Whisper? At two casting costs? Yes, it's better than Night's Whisper. See, I don't think so. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think, I don't, I don't, it, this just sort of reminds me of, like, Richie's hypothetical blue Night's Whisper. Uh-huh. So if Night's Whisper were blue, <laughs> yes, yes, it would yes. be. Well, he actually says if Night's Whisper were blue, would it need to be restricted in vintage? And his answer was yes. I I think I agree. That card well, would I don't, be pretty darn good. I'm just saying, like, to me, a forecast and cost card that draws one one card, it gives you a two one body, is not good. Well, I did start off this whole segment by saying let's talk about another card that isn't going to see play. <laughs> But the, the thing is, but the, that's why I, I think it could see play. I think, it, see, I think I disagree. I think this is playable. Mm-hmm. I think it will see a very marginal amount. May see a marginal amount of play, but I, don't, I wouldn't say yeah. it won't see play. It sees play it's, in the sense that Stormscape that, Apprentice sees play. It's the second. <laughs> <laughs> well, the difference is that Stormscape Apprentice actually has seen play and mm-hmm. continues to see play, whereas this card is merely theoretically playable. It's easily a top two hundred card. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can maybe say this: it's arguably the best. Two casting cost blue creature ever printed. <laughs> Boy, that's tough. Lord for of vintage. Lord of Atlantis vintage, would like a, le- a word for vi- with you. For current vintage play. Uh, okay, currently maybe. Given yes. that none are seeing play. Should, I should have <laughs> added the immediate caveat that I'm talking about vintage. Yeah. yeah. Because all those, the whole host of blue creatures in Legacy that, that don't ever see play in vintage. Well, let's get on to a two casting cost creature that does deserve to be talked about. 
So Grand Abolisher, the City of Solitude, just for your opponent, on legs. <laughs> Let's start with the casting cost. So um, according to Gatherer, there are 50 cards at that casting cost. Creatures. Creatures. Sorry. Right. 50 creatures that casting cost, a number of which have seen vintage play. Right. So this is clearly a playable vintage casting cost. Right. But before before we sort of get in the nitty-gritty here, I think we should um, talk sort of in broad strokes about what Wizards is doing here. You know, what's going on here. You mean the trend of this kind of creature having this kind of utility? Yeah. I. So, you know, I've been working on the history of vintage book. I know that. Our listeners might not. Well, without going into it too much detail, one of the things that I've really noticed in terms of the changes that have affected vintage and even magic over time, when you look at a period like 1993 to 97 and then 97 to 2001 and then 2001 on, I would say that arguably the most important design shift over time has been to create and design creatures that have spell effects mm -hmm. with increasing intentionality and frequency. Mm -hmm. So, like, when you go back and look at Alpha, you know, or earlier sets, I mean, the first major creatures that had, that were utility creatures, were cards like Gorilla Shaman, and then before that, Hypnotic Spectre. Now, mm -hmm. there were creatures in the original set that did things more than just combat, but sure. clearly, I mean, just let me just throw it to you this way. What is the number one most important thing that determines a card's, a creature's casting cost, in your opinion? You mean today? Or in general. Or in general? Yeah, what's the number one factor that determines a creature's casting cost? Well, boy, that's really tough, because some creatures obey such different rules but I would say number one would be its power and toughness. I think you can narrow it. Just to power. Yeah. I think that's and I agree. I, just to power. I think that, like, let's bracket that for a second because I want to come back to that. Sure. But I think that there has been a trend in the history of magic to print more utility creatures. Now, someone might go back in Alpha and look and see, well, what about Birds of Paradise? What about Prodigal Sorcerer? What about Samite Healer? What about Royal Assassin? Mm -hmm. What about Hypnotic Spectre? There were creatures in the original sets that had utility abilities. I mean, Orcish Oriflame, you know, and even... You mean Orcish, uh, the... Artillery. Artillery, yes. <laughs> and then there were even cards in the early sets, like, um, for example, um, um, in Arabian Nights, Old Man of the Sea, mm -hmm. Legends, Time Elemental. Mm -hmm. You know, there were cards that had spell-like effects, but the vast majority of them were... The vast majority of creatures... Either had, you know, they flew, they had banding, they had first strike, they had abilities that were combat-specific abilities, or they were very simple abilities like Prodigal Sorcerer or Samite Healer. Mm -hmm. The vast majority, or, or things that directly affected other creatures, right. such as nettling and forcing another creature to attack, or Royal Assassin destroying another creature. Right. Very few of them had abilities that affected directly the other player, you know, like, or their board in a more mm -hmm. general way. The only exception I can think of is Hypnotic Spectre, you know, off the top of my head. In Alpha, you mean? In Alpha. Yeah, Hypnotic Spectre is a very, very unique creature in the set of Alpha. The Interesting. Vast, the vast majority are just vanilla creatures or have simple abilities. Combat abilities. Or combat abilities, like right. banding, first strike, etc. 
Um, which, in, the, which in no small reason contributed to Hypnotic Spectre's importance in the early days of Type 1. Absolutely. Right. And I think Gorilla Shaman was a major, major breakthrough mm-hmm. because it, 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 but it didn't sort of create a design space for some reason. I mean, for so long, really, I mean, when I look at the tournament results, as part of my history, I've been looking at all the vintage tournament results mm-hmm. up through basic, you know, the history of the format. Really, up through 1997, the major creatures in the format were those that were defined by their efficiency. Juzam Jin. Mm-hmm. Kurt Ape was huge in 1996 when New York Zoo became one of the mm-hmm. predominant colors. Um, Serendip Right. was huge. It really isn't until you get into like 97 and 98 when cards like Ophidian are printed. Mm-hmm. You know, and I really think that one of the precipitating events is the Magic Invitational. Because the Magic Invitational suddenly introduces in the design pool creature cards that are utility creatures. They had a design requirement almost that they wanted two things. Creatures to represent the people in question, but interesting abilities because these people wanted interesting cards. That's right. They, I will I will just mention, though, that it's a kind of misnomer. My understanding is that the invitational cards were not all supposed to be creatures, but that just happened. It was not a requirement, yeah. but they wanted them. To, they wanted to have their <laughs> so, embodiment. Right, so think about how profound this is. I mean, I mean, Rootwater Thief, one of the initial ones, is clearly Meddling Mage, mm-hmm. Solemn Simulacrum, Dark Confidant. Uh, Void Mage Prodigy. Void Mage Prodigy. These creatures have almost all seen play in Vintage. Right. I mean, they've been huge in Vintage. Dark right. Confidant is the most played creature. Like, I mean, um, Meddling Mage has been huge historically and in present in Vintage. What are the other Invitational creatures? And I, you named all the ones I could think of offhand. Ali Rade's uh, Sylvan Safekeeper wasn't very popular in Vintage, but had a niche in the Hulk combo. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't think of it. Uh, the... <clears throat> the red black one, I forget the title of the card, but Terry So's card yeah. was not that popular. Um uh, Shadow Mage Infiltrator was certainly popular in, in, there in, you go. in vintage for a while. And, and for a while. Um these these cards really changed. Now w- what I want to draw attention to is that probably the best cards and vin- creatures in vintage are these utility creatures. I mean and there has been a dual relationship. So Goblin Welder you know, is tremendous utility creature, has spell-like effects. There have been, the, the dual relationship is that there have been um, creatures that have been designed and printed that have well-established spell effects. Mm-hmm. The Solid Primate is probably the paradigmatic example. Yep. But it runs the other way, too. There have been spells that have been printed based upon creature effects, like um, um, Trash for Treasure and Goblin Welder. <laughs> right. Um all of the Magus of the Jar, Magus, Magus is the second Magus right. cycle, based on you know prominent Famous. spells. Famous spells. Famous spells. So it runs it runs both ways, mm-hmm. you know. And what we see with this card, Grand Abolisher, is merely a um, apex of a design trend to put powerful and important utility spell effects on creatures. In, In the, this case. This, I- it's, it's interesting you compare it to the mages because in this case they even improved upon they the improved. spell effect that you could compare it to. So again, I have a couple more things before we begin our analysis, but I will, I, let's go through the ones historically. What have been the biggest ones that have seen print in recent years? 
In just, recent years? Yeah. Well, Quasali Pride Mage is, is the prototype. Right. Uh, you know, Goblin Welder is probably... But let's stick with the green and white ones, the, the white ones. Oh, the green and the white ones? So, True Believer. True, True Believer, Believer being a... Re, uh, Ivory Mask. Ivory Mask. Right. Le- recently, Leon and Relic Warder, which was most analogous to, I guess, Revoke Existence, although he can't... That's not exactly analogous. Right. Before him, there was Tide Hollow Sculler and Mesmeric Fiend, who hit the hand. Right. Those... Uh, what other white creatures? Well, there there's a Jotun Grunt, which is a sort of like a yeah a borderline Tormod's Crypt style effect. Not Tormod's Crypt, but uh, Raid Lantern type effect. Right. We mentioned earlier um, Azorius Guild Mage when we were looking up examples. That's another one that has the quasi stifle and or icy manipulator type effect. Uh, Ether Sworn Canonist. There you go. Rule of Law. Rule of Law. Even Mind Sensor? Not at two, but still a very similar effect. Very unique, though. I mean, what is what is this? Uh, what would you even call this? Like, well, that was... A mixture of... I uh, can't search your library. Yeah, the, the what was the card? that Mind Lock Orb was the card. But th- mm-hmm. this preceded Mind Lock Orb, didn't it? Right. I forget. What what set was Mind Lock Orb uh, in? It was in the same block, wasn't it? Mind Lock Orb was... No, Mind Lock Orb was in... It was a in... block. Right, it was in Alara. Uh, te- so, no, so, so you're right, it did come after uh, No, this Aven is Mind the future site, yeah. But that, so the Aven Mind Sensor really but was the, the first... the Mind Sensor came from the future anyway. So. Yeah, that's right. So, but then looking at the green side, you've got, say, well, you Xanted Swarm. Gadok Teague. Gadok Teague, that's a great example. Meddling Mage, which we've already discussed. Yeah, well, but the, the the point is that in uh, Children of Coralist, does that do anything? Is that's reverse damage, right, on yeah. creature? Yeah. Well, and also that one counteracts Storm to a significant degree. Right. <laughs> so that's why it was of interest for a while. Um, so we have now a City of Solitude on legs. Right. Or you could compare it to Abeyance. Abeyance or But Orange it's Chance. easier to compare it to City of Solitude just because it is a permanent. The point is that there have been a tremendous in number of printings in recent years of these utility creatures that, are, that have spell effects. And well, they're so important in Vintage because when it comes to creatures in Vintage, combat's not what matters. Interacting with the player is what matters. If it wasn't for Tarmogoyf, there wouldn't be a creature in Vintage that was played only for damage. Besides the Tinker Targets and Oath. And, I mean, uh, right. Not the Oath Targets. I mean, the, the Oath, Oath Targets are, the most, are yeah. disrupted themselves. Iona, Ty- Tarasadon. Tidespot Tyrant. Tarasadon. Right. Progenitus maybe is an exception. Yeah. But, but for, for the most part, Tar- Tarmogoyf, which is a design mistake, admittedly, right. is the only card that's even played just because it has a big power and toughness. And this goes back to my point, which is that Perhaps arguably the most important and profound design shift over magic has been from uh, creatures, the use, uh, the design and implementation of creatures from simply combat mm-hmm. constructs to, you know, running ta- to tactical importance, right. strategic importance. And spell like effects. Spell like effects. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Tarmogoyf is like a throwback in that sense. <laughs> I mean, it's a throwback to the super hyper efficient cards like Juzam Jen and right. Serendipity Afrit. He would have been right at home in Arabian Nights. <laughs> I know. Also like significant. My friend Kurt Ape. Also Where significantly less powerful at that time. Oh, absolutely. Because there were two card types. Well, he Afreet, had inter- Afreet, he had interrupts though. Freed and Kurt Ape. That's right. <laughs> so oh boy. Arabian Nights Tarmogoyf would have had interrupts to pump his power with too. They'd be like, "Where you been? <laughs> we know you from the future." Right now, you're going to have to have an upkeep deal of damage to you, but otherwise, you're cool. <laughs> yeah. You might have to sacrifice a land, but... <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny to consider what Tarmogoyf would have been like if it was printed in Arabian Nights. Amazing. But, but, but yeah, the, the, point is, the point is that... So, so now I want to talk about 
the reason I asked you the question of what's the most important thing in terms of the designing a creature is that we t you typically design a creature and you have to design his cast and cost around his power. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're wizards and you want to design a, a spell like this or a creature like this that has a powerful spell effect like Gadok Teague or this, mm -hmm. you want to see play in the eternal formats. And mm -hmm. these these cards see play in vintage. I mean, Lean in, Relic Water, Gadok Teague, all can't either sworn these are huge in vintage. Right. Either sworn Canis is even big in legacy. Mm -hmm. um, how do you design it? Well, you can do it like you did Shaman and make it a one casting cost card, but if you do that, you can't give it two power. Right. And if you really want this to be really anything other than the spell effect, you, you want it to have two power. And mm -hmm. if you want it to have two power, you have to make it two casting costs at right. least. That's why all these cards have two or three casting costs. Now, Glow Rider is a good example of a card that would be very playable in Vintage if it costs two. Absolutely. And I've frequently lamented the fact that that card that card, that card costs three. It's is such it a huge difference. Sphere? Is it a thorn? Is it's it a thorn? A, it's non-creature. It's thorn. It's thorn. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if that card co oh, that card costs two, it would be great. No kidding. <laughs> but would, that's the, just another The example. vintage landscape would be so different if that card costs two. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, from a design perspective, the point I'm trying to make is that these cards cluster around two because mm -hmm. they, want it, they want to make cards that have two power, and yet they want to see play in vintage. Right. So we've got a bunch of these two casting cost spells. If you want to make a utility guy that's playable in an Eternal, especially Vintage, it's a, it, it basically has to be a two casting cost two two. Right. Unless you really want to push two X. Unless you really want to push the envelope, which they haven't really done. Can you think of a two casting cost utility creature that's any better than two two? I don't think there is one. No, I mean, the only one is Jotun Grunt. There you go. His, yeah, he's and, an and exception, and and his utility is also a drawback. Yeah, so that's how they can get away with and that. And that card is good. I, I would love to see Wizards take the leap and make a utility creature that has two power and one toughness and one casting cost. I know that it's going to be better than... It's going to obsolete so many creatures. You know, Savannah Lions and what's the green one uh, from Portal? <laughs> oh, yeah. The, 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 the green Savannah the, Lions. The lions that can't intercept. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the jungle lions. Jungle lions. Well, I mean, I know that that would be problematic maybe for, for Standard, but... If they could do that, it would be just huge for Vintage. What about going the other way? Instead of focusing on the power and making much higher toughness, 1-3 or 1-4? I, mean, I don't think that's going to do it. The only way that would really matter in my understanding is if it became 1-6, because then it could indefinitely block <laughs> Lodestone Golem. But right. otherwise, there's almost right. no difference between 1 toughness and 5 toughness that's right. in Type 1 right now. That's funny. The only thing that matters is, like, Fire Ice or something like right, that. Right, right. But, yeah, I mean, so so that's what's going on with these cards, and that's why we see them clustering at two as opposed to... So let's actually talk about yeah. some Grand Abolisher yeah. then. So the casting cost, clearly. The power and toughness is clearly of the threshold that's played. Mm -hmm. So then what is this card similar to? Well, we've already compared it to City of Solitude and Abeyance. It also has a, a leg in the same pool as Xanted Swarm does. And, and Gadok T. And Gadok T. From there preventing you go. your opponent from playing Force of There you go. Um, so so uh, where do you see this card fitting in then? Okay, well, in terms of what it does, I think it's going to protect spells that you play. And that's the most important thing. It doesn't I mean, like... It's not about combat tricks. It's not about combat tricks. It's not about even, like... Stopping your it doesn't stop anything your opponent does on their turn, right? Which Gadok Teak does, right? Which Ether Sworn Canis does. Um, this card is really a proactive card. It's something that protects you. Like it's much more like Xanathar, like mm -hmm. you said. So, um, I'm just wondering 
what is it you're going to be playing that's going to break this card? It seems to me it's got to be something really good and backbreaking. It's got to be something like choke. Like you have this card down, your opponent can't do anything, you play choke. Mm -hmm. Or an, even like a null rod. Or you your know? own tinker. Your own tinker. Fish right. decks these days are occasionally packing their own tinker package. Right. It's going to ensure the resolution of any spell you want to play. It also prevents them from tapping artifacts mm -hmm. for mana. Not that they could use them anyway. For much anyway. Yeah. Tell me, talk more in a archetypal standpoint. Do you think this goes in an existing deck? Do you think it makes a new deck? Is it a sideboard card for existing decks? Okay, let's talk about all the potential places this would be used. Clearly, it's going to be potentially used in Fish and Beats decks. Right. Beyond Fish and Beats, it could be a tool for decks that, like a, um, what's the name of that deck? Bomberman deck, you know? A, d a deck that is a, qu a quasi-aggro combo deck yeah. that has creatures that are sometimes disruptive, sometimes combo elements, and happens to have a big finish if it gets the opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a very good example. But, the, but I think its primary promise is in Beats and, and Fish. I think this goes alongside Gadok Teague and Kosali Pride Mage. Right. I just think that, you need, that the key to unlocking this card is going to be finding this, the bomb that you're going to resolve and it's going to win the game. Well, that's what I was about to ask, is what are those decks doing that this, deck, this card cares to protect? I think it has to be something like Choke or On That Order, right. a Magnitude. Na maybe nature, uh, natural order. Maybe natural order has a place in type one. What now. would you? What would you? Oh, progenitus. Yeah. You've got enough green creatures to sack. You're playing the same creature packages in legacy. Yeah, it's also going to protect. I mean, again, it protects anything you do. Uh, it's just going to be interesting to see where this card ends up. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the noble. See the noble fish decks. Oh, we forgot to mention Samurai of the Pell Curtain. <laughs> another, another good one. one. Yep. Um. But I don't know if any of the fish deck, sorry, the blue heavy fish decks run white, white, white cards, do they? I well, mean, they are at least running. Believer? They're True at least running um, some white cards in Quasali, Pride Mage, and Gaddock Teague. But you're right. I don't think those decks, decks would have green, so you can have like a Tundra and a Noble Hierarchy. Right. Those decks would have to rejigger themselves, I think, considerably in order to support this card main. I think this card's m most promise is going to be in a Beats deck. Yeah, green, white Beats. Green X beats, yeah. Green white, sorry, green white X beats, yeah, or white X beats. Right. Do you see it having a place in any other style archetype? I mean, it does. We talked about Bomberman. It could show up there. It does do just as good a job at protecting your bombs as Abeyance and Xanid Swarm do. What what other bombs would you be resolving? Like, what can you think of? You said Natural Order. Tinker is the first one that came to mind. It's not like those decks assemble Time Vault combo. No, but I mean, I think often you know these decks think, well, I can't play a spell that costs more than three or two, mm -hmm. because if it gets countered, I need to be able to play another. Right. But this card changes that equation. You know, this card in Gadot can really, you can protect something really powerful. So it might actually allow these decks to play a more expensive, but game-threatening, higher-casting-cost spell, like Bomb. Interesting. I don't know what that would be. Okay. Well, maybe we're just going to have to stretch our minds because we haven't been thinking along those lines for a while. Yeah. Gaddock Teague gets you part of the way there, but the problem with Gaddock Teague is that <clears throat> he also shuts down some of the bombs you might want to play that way. Right. Whereas this card doesn't have that problem. Now, we actually also forgot to mention Kataki is another main oh, creature. Go. And then, no, we haven't even discussed the potential for Stoneforge Mystic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another spell-like effect on a two-casting-cost body. 
is it possible that like a stone forge miss is is grand abolisher uh, two toughness? Yes, it's two two. Yeah. There are so many just white bears that are disruptive these days that you could conceivably construct a mono white deck, <laughs> mono white aggro deck that that could. It could, could compete. You do with it could disrupt Mystic. What could you get? Well, you could just do what they do in every other format and get Batter, Batter Skull, Skull plus a mixture of swords, Gite and sort of Fire and Ice, perhaps, to protect you against. How quickly bounce. can you win with something like that? That's the thing. Not you still can't win very quickly. Batter Skull is still in swinging for four. Sword is swinging for effectively four damage as well, plus the creature's power. So mm-hmm. you're still only bashing for six to eight a turn. Still not that fast of a clock. That's a what, three or four turn clock? But that, that clock doesn't start until turn three or four, though. So <laughs> the point is you're still on a turn seven, turn eight beatdown win. You could survive. You'd have to be very disruptive. You'd have to be running... The, abo- the, the thing about the Abolisher is it doesn't disrupt your opponent. He stops their Force of Wills and their Mana Drains and such on yeah. your guys, but he doesn't stop them from, from just anything they tinkering and assembling Time Vault and playing Tezzeret and so on. So you need to have built-in answers to everything they do. You need to have disruptive Same guys. Thing. You need to have Relic Warders. Maybe you have to play green just for Pride Mage and Gaddock Teague as well. Maybe white you sideboard the samurai and yeah. You sideboard the samurai. You samurai. Uh, sorry, you sideboard True Believer too to for stop Oath, Oath yeah. and other combo decks. Maybe. I just it's not quite there. Yeah. I think you're right. This guy's place is protecting your bombs. This guy's place is forcing your opponent to address him because if they don't, they're not going to be able to address the thing that will kill them. You know, I think that that sort of draws a comparison to Vexing Shusher. And Zan Swarm. Yeah. And Zan Swarm. And the difference is between Shusher and Shusher is actually, a, again, a, a beater, so you can deal damage with it. Shusher just hasn't been that good. Well, his activation really puts a damper on things. That's true. This guy doesn't have an activation. Right. But... And also, this guy's even more thorough than Shusher. <laughs> I mean, he straight across. With Shusher, there's other things you can do. They can still Hercules they recall you and other things. Of solitude. Right, they yeah. are they are locked out. So, I don't know. We'll see. So, let's move on to our last M12 card, I think. And this okay. one is probably the one that's the most fun. <laughs> I mean, really. So, we're talking about... What's the title of this card? Sundial. Yeah, I like to call it Fundial. (laughs) Because there's just nothing this card doesn't do that isn't fun. (laughs) There's no way to use this card without a big smile coming to your face. Just look at this card and it's fun. I know. So what we're talking about is the artifact for two. You tap one and tap it and it ends your turn. You'll use it only on your turn. Now... This odd name for this card. I know, isn't it strange? And this is a, this is the prototypical card that causes me to shake my head and wonder, why is this in the core set? This card is so oblique, so unobvious, so not intuitive that if you were to open this, if you're a new player and you open this in a pack of M12, you're just going to immediately think, why would I ever play this card? <laughs> it's not like a creature that's big and dumb that, that, that seasoned players are going to say, oh yeah, six casting costs five, five, big deal, that's for limited. This card just defies all measure if you're a new player, if you're in a, in a core set, from a, from a core set mentality. This card... Well, do you think that it's going to confuse new players? It's not... I'm not talking about confusion. The concept like, is... is this Knowledge Pool? No, it's not <laughs> Knowledge Pool. It's not Raging River. It's not Chains of Mephistopheles. It's very simple, but it's also completely unobvious and completely right. hard to, to grasp. You know what? You, you could look through 90% this... of this core set and not find any card that would interact with this card positively in any way. Let me just mention something. Yeah, I, I hear you. I think that this card is, in one sense, the perfect core set card. <laughs> in the, that sense, is because that of it, how elegant it is. How elegant it is, how simple it is. 
I mean, this is a card you could imagine being printed in Alpha. It's just wacky enough to be an Alpha card. Right. right? right. <laughs> it's it's simple enough to be a Richard Garfield design. Right. You know, like it's in this, the vein of Despotic Scepter. Yeah. Very simple. Time Vault. It's, right. It's in, the, it's in that vein of like... It, but it, but then but unbel- but the, the reason that it blows my mind that this card is in the course is this card is a rules nightmare. It, it's I mean it's gonna, gonna be so confusing. Judge judge judge. <laughs> I mean you're gonna have to have a section of the rules book as long as the one for Mindslaver for well, dealing with this card. That section already exists thanks to Time Stop, of course. Oh, of course I forgot. This about is time this stop. is the Time Stop tome. Time Stop tome. Oh yeah. Amazing. Well, but the big difference, of course, is you can time stop your opponent's turn. Right. And that's the reason why this costs half as much and is colorless, is because oh. you can't do their turn. But So let's There's talk... There's a card I'd forgotten about. Let's wow. talk about our, our methods of measuring this card. Now, it costs two colorless with one to activate. Is that casting cost playable in vintage? There's a billion. Clearly. Yeah. Clearly. There's not even, it's not even worth discussing any further. <laughs> yeah. So then the trick is... Well, let's talk about one way of comparing things in vintages. There's what, no comparison. What is this card like? <laughs> There's no comparison. You just mentioned time I forgot stop. about time stop. I Yeah, but that card's that, never played in vintage. What's it cost? Like six. six? Yeah. It's a type four card. Yeah, it's a type four card. <laughs> so it's an EDH card. Um, so functionally speaking, this card is unlike anything in type one mm-hmm. that's that's actually played. Wait, who's the artist? Vincent uh, Prose? Interesting. <laughs> So Vincent Price is the artist. <laughs> it's Beetlejuice's maker. How <laughs> oh, are you thinking of Edward Scissorhands? <laughs> Silly. <laughs> oh, you're right. Thank you. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so what are you going to do with this card? Now, obviously, it, bo- it boggles the mind, but... The first thing I thought of was, well, I want to put a Tangle Wire and a Smokestack into play, and I want to add a counter to Smokestack on my upkeep and then skip the rest of my turn. I feel like you're jumping something here. I'm just saying, that was the first thing I thought of. But obviously... (laughs) That was the first thing you thought of? It was the first thing I thought of, was I want to end my turn on my upkeep after adding a counter to Smokestack. Wow, I want to end my turn on a Smokestack. Precisely what I said. (laughs) When I saw this card, the first thing I thought of was, well, this thing stops Hercules Recall. Yeah, well, so that's a very me- that's that's a next level kind of consideration for this kind See, of card. I think yours is the next level consideration. <laughs> I don't know. I might felt obvious, <laughs> but anyway, to your point, yes, one of the strategic weaknesses of workshops has for the last several years been Hercules Recall and Rebuild, and the time you play those cards is on your opponent's end step when it's going to be maximally devastating to them allowing you to untap and do whatever you want. And this card is like a silver bullet designed for that scenario. Okay, so so let's let's break it down. Yeah. There's there's no way of comparing this card to any card that exists because there is nothing like it. No. It's a completely unique, virtually unique card. While it might have some it's, of the same words it, as Time, time Stop, <laughs> it's totally different. It, it shares words. It, <laughs> it, it's actually probably close to something like Nullbridge than anything else. So, so it, let's, it, yeah, you're right. So let, let's just... Let's just ask very concretely, concretely, what does this do? We know it ends the turn, but what does it actually do? It avoids a bad thing from happening. It, what does it do? First, you mentioned it ends the turn with smokestack counters, triggers on the, uh, having resolved, some having resolved, the other not. Right. Same with Tangle Wire. Yep. It, it clears Hercules Recalls off the stack. Right. It clears Counterspells off the stack, although... It, it takes the spell you wanted to. What else is, does this do? It, tri- it Other really bad triggered abilities like Phyrexian Dreadnought, like ah. Eater of Days and Leveler, ah. that category of thing, even though you wouldn't so, play any of them would be on Dreadnought. See, so I think the key point is that it stops 
triggers. It removes so what triggers. But more broadly, there? but more broadly, it removes drawbacks from cards. Right. It a, removes, cer- a certain category of cards. Right. So there are two kinds of triggers I think we need to pay attention to. First are delayed triggers. Yeah. And the second is CIP triggers. Right. Yeah. So this actually stop. This can allow. Well, it could allow a Lotus Veil to come into play if they were. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> so so let's break it down. Let's talk. Let's identify a list of, of comes into play triggers that this will stop, and then let's talk about the late triggers that well, will stop. It overlaps pretty directly with the creatures you would play in an Illusionary Mask deck with the Dreadnoughts and the Hunted Horrors of the World. Oh, right. So this provides some additional redundancy for a deck like that. Now, is that necessary? No, because you've already got eight two-casting-cost artifacts to facilitate that strategy and are probably better at it. But it does fulfill that role as well. Mm-hmm. So so just name some of those. Name Phyrexian those. Dreadnought. Okay, and Haunted Horror. And, and Haunted Horror, yeah. What other CIPs are there? I mean, it won't well, stop. Well, those are the, the most efficient ones that you're most likely interested in stopping. There's Eater of Days, which is a four-casting-cost big flying guy that causes you to skip two turns. There's no way you would play that card over the two I just mentioned, but right. it's another example of a card in that category. There are plenty of other effects that cause you to sacrifice things when this comes into play that there's too many to list. But the point is, Dreadnought is probably the poster child for that effect. The most efficient one, the one you're most likely to play in that context. But okay. then so the other category, I think, is also very interesting. Because this... We have ways around Dreadnought. This card is not unique in its effect on Phyrexian Dreadnought. Right. It is unique in its effect on cards like Final Fortune. <sighs> so now you've got a straight-up Time Walk, kind, not straight-up, but a Time Walk-like effect for two mana that you can play eight copies of. Wait, is it eight or twelve? I think there's actually three different cards that have that same effect in Type 1. That each time you can get the Time Walk and then end the turn at the following turn with that trigger on the stack. I've done a gatherer search for when it comes into play. <laughs> I've gotten almost all unglued cards. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So this card interacts very well with unglued. <laughs> <laughs> well, for one thing, it's entered the battlefield in today's oh, that's nomenclature. Right. Well, that's probably why I'm getting Yeah, lost. you're getting unglued cards. So Try and do a search for... Uh, all right, I'll take a look. But, but yes, the, the time walk effects, Final Fortune, and there's the other version of time, Final Fortune are huge. Yeah. Those, I mean... Is, that alone is worth trying to, to see if you can make a combo with this card. I mean, look, if Time Vault and Voltaic Key are powerful enough and each card is terrible by itself, you know, this card is certainly worthy of exploring. I mean, Final Fortune, first of all, let me just say that I think that's a very possible legacy combo. Sure. Final there, Fortune. There was a Get your Final deck. Fortunes now. What's the what's the, the portal version? Uh, oh, shoot. I knew you were going to ask me that. The starter version... There's a starter version and a portal version, oh. and I can't remember the name so of either of them offhand. Oh, so there's actually three of this card. Final yeah, Fortune? that's what I'm saying. You can play oh 12 God. copies. You can functionally play 12 copies of Final Fortune. You can actually play Fortune. more than that because you can play Burning Wishes. <laughs> Why would you need to? <laughs> you can play Death Wish too. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. <laughs> but 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 I think I think that is I mean that's a combo, right there. Where okay. you can just begin taking the turns. starter version is called Last Chance. Yeah. And the Portal Three Kingdoms version is called Warrior's Oath. And they both red red? And they're they're all the same card. Oh, God. How much does that card one? Warrior's Oath cost now? Probably like a hundred bucks. Um, <laughs> it's not that bad, I don't think. No, it's only well, twenty five. 
get them now because if that deck is good, that deck is going to be. Oh wow! Yeah. Anybody, who, anybody listening here who's interested in speculating on magical cards, yeah. you might want to take a look at Warrior's Oath right now. <laughs> but to, to be honest, though, the odds of that deck actually playing twelve copies of some said card probably pretty slim. What if you imprint it on us? Well, that's what I was about to say. That one's a sorcery. So I guess I should have said I was not entirely correct. That one's a sorcery, and the starter version is a sorcery, but Final Fortune is an instant. You can put it so on it. You can put it on a Did you know about the deck called Final Fantasy? There was a oh, deck a while back that? that played Platinum Angel oh, and put yes, Final Vintage. Put Final Final Fortune on Isochron Scepter. Well, that was a vintage deck, wasn't it? Well, I'm thinking of it in Legacy at the mm. time, but it's certainly portable to vintage. It's just not that good. Wow. But that a similar effect where you would so you avoid play, the drawback. You could play like ancient tombs. That, I mean, you could seriously, and you could really just start taking a bunch of turns, and then yeah, exactly like have an effect. You could even play uh, what's the delayed trigger um, that we just mentioned it earlier? Draw three cards, discard three cards, and ideas turn. unbound. Ideas unbound. That's another good delayed trigger that you can prevent Oof. with this card. Yeah. Oof. You but, might be able to just build pack enough of these things in a deck. In Legacy. The problem is, what if you don't draw the fun dial? <laughs> <laughs> then you get the deck filled with cards if that you can't it cast. It costs one. Then you could Trinket Mage it. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. What's, what about the Reverse Trinket Mage? What is that uh, guy? That it's guy three, gets six or more. Six or yeah, more. Treasure yeah. Mage. No. Treasure Mage. No, the only way to get the only good way to get twos is with Transmute, which Transmute you could artifact. do. Ooh. Well, no, I'm talking about the Transmute mechanic. I'm talking about muddle the mixture. Oh. Here I thought you were talking about Transmute Artifact. Well, How cool is that? <laughs> it is also cool and playable in Legacy. <laughs> so there's that. But so You can put, like, Frogmind to play Transmute Artifact. <laughs> so ignoring for a moment the fact that there are a zillion combinations with this card, uh, mm. incidentally, I searched for Enters the Battlefield, and there's only 1,129 <laughs> cards. So we with those three words. One of them. Yeah, let's start now. So, <laughs> most of them are effects you wouldn't want to skip, of course. <laughs> You're going to need to narrow that search down because I don't think you want to play Acidic Slime yeah. and then skip the trigger. Here's one you wouldn't want to skip is Necropotence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good example. You can't skip skipping your draw step. <laughs> and Accumulative Upkeeps actually are interesting. We well, with Remora. It turns Remora's oh, yeah. upkeep into just one, oh, but you also don't get a turn, <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> just go, go, exactly. go, go, go. What happens? Is this opponent just going to, like... <laughs> They're just going to draw and play lands until they have enough mana to pay for all the triggers for yeah. your Remora. But it is That's still funny. a profitable interaction. Maybe Remora goes into the deck that this card is in for, yeah. the, for the off chance that you have other effects. If That's you, cute. For example, if you have Smokestack and Mystic Remora... Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's there's a combination that I never expect to ever see ever. But the point is, you could add Mr. Cromore to but other interactions. You'd love it, though. Oh, I would. <laughs> you would have no idea how much I would enjoy to have Smokestack and Mr. Cromore in play Take type a picture one. and you just got a big grin on your face. That's right. That, that's second only to my favorite combination, which is Smokestack and Necropotence. Because <laughs> I still get the draw step. Braids. <laughs> yeah, Braids. That's a good one, too. So the, the point is, this card has all kinds of crazy possibilities. The mind boggles, and I just hope, I, I legitimately hope that this card is a thing. I, I legitimately oh, hope man. that we see a deck that has three of these in it. I think so. You've seen my scale, right? <laughs> like, I don't think, it's definitely not in the mind's desire. No, it's know, not like, it's, a, a it, staple by it's any not, stretch. It's not even in the, like, gifts, fact, you know, like, cards we know, you know, cards we know we'll see play. It's definitely in the third category. This is a playable card. Yeah. There's some exciting combinations. 
It'll be interesting. I hope it sees play. It'll be interesting right. to see play. You know what? I almost want to say I think that this is more. This is more than playable. This is. This should definitely see some play. I mean, this card, just the ability to deal with. I mean, just fun. Go ahead. I was gonna say it's very analogous, in my opinion, to Illusionary Mask, hmm. a good card. Wacky. Wacky, yeah. It, <laughs> but, but it only makes one deck, basically. It's not a format staple. You don't put Illusionary Mask into a bunch of decks. You make really? an Illusionary Mask deck, and it's good. And for a while, well, it was a good you deck. I don't think that this could see playing across a range of archetypes. I mean, if this shows up in oh, Legacy as a Final Fortune deck, and it shows up in Workshop Sideboards as an Anti-Heracles card. No I, has let's range. talk about that specifically, though. While I agree that it does function as an Anti-Heracles card, you really think that this card nope. really addresses that problem? Let me say something. When... Mud was created when Arthur Tindemans and Cohen first unveiled Mud in, right. in, in Vintage. Remember, they had Nullbrooch. I do. I do remember that. that. As a, in Nullbrooch, you know, they also had Grafted Skullclap, but we can't believe it. <laughs> right. Um, I think that the ability to clear a busy stack is just very important. And it's not always that you have a spell that you want to resolve. It's, you know, maybe they're playing Ancient Grudge. I mean, Exile and Ancient Grudge is pretty freaking big. Yeah. I know a lot of people right now, a lot of workshop players, are trying to figure out, how do I beat Ancient Grudge? And I hear people saying, I'm going to put Leyline in my sideboard and blah, blah, blah. Interesting. This yeah. card. This card has a very powerful effect on Ancient Grudge, now, doesn't it? Now, it, they can just Ancient Grudge on their turn. Right. That's so. the... But is it, isn't that better, though? It, it is an improvement. Yes. But I'm thinking... Here's what I'm thinking. If this card comes out into play, you get your turn one Lodestone Golem, right? This is the straw yeah. that you want to stop the Hercules on. You get your turn two Fundile, and your opponent gets up to three mana, and they're threatening Hercules Recall. Aren't they just going to play it, say, on your upkeep? On your upkeep? Yeah. And yeah. force you to end your turn pre-combat. and it, It's just... But they've lost you, their Hercules. I understand that, but you've lost your turn, That's and all your artifacts are... That's you're still your lodestone's still in play, but you missed an attack. So it's it's not like it it answers the Hercules problem. It just I think alters the Hercules problem because don't forget you've got this crappy card in your deck. Well, let me ask you another example. <laughs> what if someone goes like ancestral recall on your end step? If you have fun dial in play, are they going to play ancestral recall on your end step? No, they're no. going to play it in the middle of combat or some time when they want you to end your turn. That's that's what I'm getting at. Gotcha. This card sits in play. It's not a surprise. Yeah. It's not like Red Elemental Blast where yeah. you can just get people with all their eggs in the so Hercules basket. can you basket. imagine a scenario where, can you think of a scenario where you will want to use this card to clear the stack? I I think that similar to the Buried Ruins, this card helps control workshop decks more. Uh, when you're on your upkeep, and you've got four triggers on the stack, and you <laughs> say, all right, my smokestack gets a counter, I'm going to end my turn, that's a much more powerful effect. The problem with that is if you are proactively using the fun dial, you get double blown out by the Hercules Recall. Yeah. Because they do it in response. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so it's a very interesting tension with this card, is you don't want to be proactive with this card facing Hercules Recall. Yeah. Because you've lost your you've turn, lost your turn and, and your whole board. board. Yeah, you got the end step effect on your upkeep, <laughs> which is even worse, because you're losing your draw. Right. So, no, I hadn't considered those drawbacks. Those I, are meaningful drawbacks. Yeah, I think that this card has a, a niche place, possibly. If there's a whole deck devoted to it such that you don't really fear the Hercules Recall, meaning a deck that isn't that can play around the Hercules or minimize that drawback, mm -hmm. then that's a different answer. You know, the, the Final Fantasy-style approach where you have other threats and you're doing other things such that Hercules isn't the primary path to defeat you. My, my instinct says that there's enough delay trigger 
you know, that you can use this card profitably enough that it should, and there are enough synergies out there that this card should see play. There are plenty of synergies, I'll give you that. It Some may of be them, this just is more a, le- a legacy card. Well, it could be, and it also could simply be that we have ignored, we have blinders on to certain cards like Ideas Unbound, like Final Fortune, because the yeah. drawback is so bad. <laughs> yeah. So that maybe as you reevaluate evaluate more cards, yeah. this one comes to the fore. Someone stifles your activation. You're <laughs> yeah. See, you but, open yourself up to a lot. But there are a bunch of cards that we, you know, we haven't gone through the gatherer yet, but like, you know, hunted wumpus type effects or you yeah. know, whatever, like Argothian worm. Yeah. You know where you can just get get a, a really efficient effect, a real card, in, you know, just negate the drawback, like you said at the right. beginning of the analysis. Right. Well, the very interesting design space for this card is to find those effects that aren't on creatures. Because every creature example of that is immediately trumped by a Phyrexian Dreadnought. I there's see. just there's no reason to look for an example yeah. that's better than Phyrexian Dreadnought. Right. What you want to look for is the non-obvious ones that are creatures with delayed triggers or the non-creature things that come into play that you'd want to stop, which you haven't been able to get around with Torpor Orb or Illusionary Mask until now. Fair enough. All right. Well, I, I, I think uh, this for 55 cards... The fact that we had to select seven or eight to talk about right. suggests something about the set, and this is pretty impressive. Set. I agree. I think this set is great for vintage. So, what do you think? Just stepping back and thinking, you know, big picture. What do you think makes a core set fun and interesting? Oh boy, what makes a core set fun? Well, similar to our questions of what makes magic fun, I think diversity is one of those things. I think a core set needs to have cards that appeal to almost every format and every type of player in order for me to call it a fun core set. Mm -hmm. I love to look through a core set, pick out the vintage cards, pick out the EDH cards, pitch out Pick out the legacy <laughs> cards. Pick out. I don't pick out type you two cards, it but up like a pie. Uh, well, and I, I'm not saying I, I put these things only into one camp. I'm just saying, oh, that card's good for this, and oh, that card's good for this. I love a set that has me thinking about every way I play Magic. See, that's interesting. Uh, I, since I only play Magic, basically legacy and vintage, and predominantly vintage. When I look at the set, I look. I'm trying to look at it more from an aesthetic perspective. When I was reading through the set, you know, I was thinking about how really groundbreaking. M10 was. Yeah. Because M10 really went back to basics. Like, it was almost like an alpha approach. Top-down design. You know, all the cards were made as simple as possible. Right. Thematic. You know, it had that really... And, and to me, I, that's why I want to see in a core set. I, I want to see a core set. If I see a card that has text over a paragraph in a core set, I'm sort of upset. And I think this card, this set, fails that paragraph test. A couple, in a couple of key places. Yeah, I mean, you just got some really complicated, and this goes back to your, you know, I think your surprise about Sundial. I mean, I looked at some of the cards in this set, and just confusing. Now, now Knowledge Pool is arguably the most complicated card ever printed, and right. it's going to have rules boondoggle right. questions. I, Sundial is a simple card by comparison, but it has lots of rules questions. <laughs> right, the, all the text is in the rule book. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of these cards are, in the set are complicated, so I don't think it quite lives up to M10 thematically or in terms of so the elegance and simplicity of the design. Not, acro- not entirely, but it does still have some of that elegance. Yeah. And what do you make of the the omission of Preordain and the return of Ponder? I think was that... Was Ponder in a basic set? No, yes, it was. Yeah, it was in Lorwyn and then and, and then M10. So, what do so, you make of the return of Ponder? Well, for one, I think there there are two things that you see. Okay, God, there are three things that you see here. One, Preordain's not back, and I think why? Well, I think Preordain was probably too good. Yeah. Along with Jace and Mana Leak, 
Preordain was one of those cards where there were 30 copies, or there were 28 copies in every top eight for a while. It was one of the a trifecta of things. Now, no one ever really seriously considered banning it in Type 2. Right. But it was right we there. We don't know that. They may have. Well, no, I mean, I mean compared to Jace at, and Stoneforge. I mean, there were just as many Preordains as there were Jaces in a lot of those I know, but days. I don't think anyone seriously considered banning Preordain. Okay. It would not have helped. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if they banned all three, is what I'm saying. Okay. In addition, maybe. But when they banned Ponder and But Razor. anyway, the, the, my point is simply that at that power level, I think they thought that, that Preordain was simply too good and they wanted to take a little bit of a break. What makes, I mean, you know, I was really struck in our last podcast, you said that, I was asking you about why Brian DeMars runs Preordain in his Vintage Control deck and, and, and wouldn't have run Ponder. And you said because Preordain gives you better selection ability. Right. Which I think is really interesting. I mean, to me... It, from a facial perspective, one would think that Ponder is, is a better card than Preordain, a more powerful card. It, it's more like Impulse. It digs deeper immediately. Yeah. It, it allows you the selection of the three cards straight up, and I agree completely. But, but experience has shown that Preordain is a better card. Absolutely, because our decks are so, especially in Vintage, where you have one Hercules Recall and one Ancient Grudge and maybe a couple of Jace and this one other card, you want... You, so frequently, you want one out of the three, and you really, really, really don't want the other two. <laughs> That's just how it works out so often. So, Such that Ponder, if it doesn't find you a game-winning card, sometimes puts you in a really difficult and bad situation <laughs> in that you're, you, you, can't, you have to have another means to get past the other two cards. So if your conclusion is that they went back to Ponder because they realized Preordain was too powerful. I think so then what does that mean for Ponder being restricted in Vintage and Preordain being unrestricted? <laughs> well, I think that the, the, two, they reverse I think that? the two should be reversed. <laughs> no, I, what I seriously think is that Ponder can be safely unrestricted at this point. Really? Oh, yeah. Now, be, because what's going to happen? If they do that, a couple of decks might play all eight of the those. decks will. <laughs> Maybe, but I don't, I don't think that's actually right. Will. My decks will. I, I honestly don't feel like that's right. I think that that actually... Right. I, I think that if you have all eight, you could actually get pretty close to full Gushmon strength again. Oh, boy. That's really interesting. But, at any rate, it seems pretty clear that by almost every measure, Preordain is better than Ponder. I, I, I agree. Functionally. I think, that, I think that there are a couple key cases where Preordain is not better. One is... You really need a land on, on the second land, and you're playing turn one ponder. Okay. You really, I think also... In and like in land light decks, you're right, that comes up. I also think in a deck like Oath, despite the fact that you can hit an Oath creature, you really just, you're just digging for the Oath. That's all you're doing. You know, you're just looking for a combo part. I kind of feel like ponder's better. See, I think that Oath is the prototypical example of why Preordain's better. Oath has so many bad Dead cards. cards. Not, it's not just but, the creatures, but, but it's the, multiple oaths and multiple orchards in some cases. There are just so many bad saying, cards. But what about the fact that you, you can, you're willing to draw the bad cards if you get closer to the card you really need? Well, oath is a very interesting example because you're right. You're so much more likely to win when you find that oath. Yeah. It's so much more proximate to the It's not like Brian's deck where it's not like where like if he gets the wrong card he loses and he gets the you know he's cycling yeah. away the, the card he doesn't need for this matchup. Right. All you want is oath. It's just. Having played a lot of games recently with preordained decks and Gush specifically, I just can't tell you how many times I've preordained into two lands, such that it's just not worth having that whatever that third card is. Mm-hmm. It's not worth having that card in my hand or knowing what that card is right now 
to have those two lands right under it. <laughs> you know, be, because let's not forget that with Preordain, you can still get to the third card. I guess when, when you can't Ponger... get to the fourth one the way you can with Ponder, but yeah, I I just I don't know. I prefer Preordain. I like to have more control. I like to sacrifice that tiny little sliver of power that you're referring to for a, a great deal more control. The thing is, Ponder actually has an advantage over Brainstorm, but I don't think Preordain necessarily has. Preordain is, 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 is not in any way better than Brainstorm, is it? Uh, is Preordain in any way better than Brainstorm? No. Ponder can say actually see one more card than One Brainstorm. more card than Brainstorm, sure. So, I mean, sure. that is in itself, like, you know, it's it's the fact that Ponder is not strictly inferior to Brainstorm suggests that Ponder in some yeah. level should be more powerful than Preordain. Uh, but there's another metric that you can measure with Brainstorm by, which is how much your hand can change. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so. No, no, I, I'm not comparing Ponder to Brainstorm. I'm comparing right. Ponder to Preordain. Well, and but I the, agree. Ob- objectively speaking, seeing more cards can be straight up drawn as an analogy for greater power. And I think I think this might be one of those cases where people at Wizards and rightfully expected that they... In fact, I suspect that they thought they were fixing Ponder when they created Preordain. I, I agree. I think that they thought that they were. Let's <laughs> they were have lowering it see, the level of Let's power. have it see one less card. But also, let's not forget, too, that, <laughs> that Preordain has <laughs> the elegance factor that you were referring to. The simple mechanical elegance of Preordain, I think, is deceptive. Get, explain. I'm not following. Well, because Ponder has so much more text for such a similar effect. Oh, look, I see. Look at see. these three... You may draw, put them back in any the order. You may draw, text. then yeah. you may shuffle and draw. Ugh. It has so much more to it, whereas Scry 2, Draw 1 is gotcha. such a core set kind See, of I don't, thing. I don't think of it in terms of Scry 2, Draw 1. I think of it as look at the top two cards. Right. But, you know, so to me, it's just a paragraph. Right. Both. I, I understand. You're right. In a sense, it is because, the, again, the, the, the text is buried in the rules for Scry <laughs> yeah. as opposed to. But I just think it, it's a, such a much better core set card from an aesthetic fair. standpoint That's too. Fair. But anyway, you asked why do I think it happened? Well, the, the big reason I think is power, but also I think they wanted to get out of having a, another preordained defined format. Right. So why and also, just... But then the third option is why didn't they make a new <laughs> yeah. one casting cost blue sorcery that sees two or three cards? Or put in sleight of hand or something like that. Right. And I think, I, I think, I think the simple answer is that none of the other cards that have existed, like sleight of hand or serum visions, are good enough. I think that they think people would have seen that as a great disappointment, hmm. and they didn't want to make a new one because they realize that those cards <laughs> so, continually so, define the format. So that what you're saying is that they could they, they could put in ponder and people would get excited about it, even though it's a power downgrade. Not excited, not excited. <laughs> no, just just I, that I'm just excited. That serum visions, <laughs> just that serum visions and sleight of hand would right. have been so disappointing. Well, it's almost like you're reviving an old favorite. But yeah, you know, you're, right. it's, it's a downgrade, but it's not doesn't feel like an aesthetic downgrade. There you go. Not many players, the average player, and I'm doing me an average worldwide average player is not going to look at Ponder and go, say, "This is worth the period. Exactly. In fact, I think the exact opposite. Right. They're, that's exactly right. I think the popular opinion will not be, "Boy, they really screwed us on this one." The popular <laughs> yeah, opinion is, "Oh, we got some variety." You took and... away obsessive recall and you gave us brainstorm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not like that. Yeah. So I think a combination of those factors meant they didn't want it. They didn't want preordained back, and they didn't want to make something new. So M12 and review, um, good set, potential eternal playables for just a few. By the way, I did want to mention this. I think that one of the things that really has helped these core sets is adding new cards. I mean, without oh, question. Oh yeah, without question. There's so just no two ways about it. You're, 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 give us your one or two sentence conclusion of M12. I think it follows. It's a good 
follower to the return to alpha style that you were referred to the top-down design I think they could have used a few more new cards but ultimately I'm glad for the new playables we've got and some of the returning good stuff for other formats I'm excited for Grand Abolisher and the Fundile <laughs> <laughs> I think and Barry Groom should all three of those should should have a place in vintage oh yeah I, I'm I think that it's not quite as aesthetic and elegant as M M10 but I'm excited by what I've seen, and I hope that they continue this trend. Okay. So let's finish up by talking with some, about some listener feedback to yesterday's, yesterday's, I feel like it was yesterday's, question of the week. <laughs> Last episode's question of the week, what makes magic fun? What makes formats fun? What makes, I don't know, what makes magic fun? We got some good, uh, a number of good answers. They were all long-winded, so we won't read you the detailed responses. Um, William Winger identified a number of things. He says that two things are important, the most important to him. First, the outcome of a game must be in doubt. So a format that has games, you know, th that fun formats need to have games that are interactive, that, you know, you're not sure who's going to win from the outset. That's how I read that. Mm -hmm. And that greater skill must produce greater returns. He says also that he doesn't like uh, coin flip games um, because the outcome is not in doubt. Um, and he doesn't like... Um, he he, he, he um, wants decisions that affect the outcome... Um, within the game to matter. Um, he knows that he acknowledges that randomness is a part of the game, but he thinks that uh, that skill that it involved that is mental and not physical, as not flipping coin or whatever, matters uh, the most. He thinks that vintage is fun relative to other formats because of the much higher uh, level of power and the greater potential for facing or using game ending bombs. So there's a sort of like life or death, mm -hmm. cliffhanger <laughs> feel to vintage. Um, Maximum Dog also responded, and he said that um, he says that uh, vintage. He says more than any other format is a two-player game, which is funny to think about vintage because the stereotype runs the opposite way. Right. You know, he says that you must interact with your opponent immediately. Um, he also says in vintage you control your own destiny. So it's like choose your own adventure books. <laughs> like, you know, if you choose path A and you go to path A, it says you have fallen down a pit and died. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's that's true. Your, your opponent tinkers for Blightsteel Colossus. <laughs> <laughs> you, good job playing demonic tutor instead of leaving Drain up. <laughs> right. Um, he also says that um, he thinks vintage is also all about bombs, but he calls them nuclear warheads. <laughs> um, but um, he thinks that, that Vintage is very special. It's very um, complicated lines of play. There's lots of decision-making. We also got some emails. Do you want to just reflect, respond to some of the content of those? Yeah, Troy Costastic wrote us again, and one of the main themes for his description of what makes a format fun is the diversity. And yeah. he specifically called out, your ability as a player and a deck selector to switch between decks inside of a metagame or inside of a format. He says he likes environments where, even with some similar cards, you can switch from one strategy to the next. And 
for instance, he gave an example of vintage from a couple of years back where there were maybe more diversity in workshop decks, for example. Mm-hmm. There was actual choice to be made between a Stax deck and a Mud deck. Cool. You and, know, I, I just have to say, that, that, you know, and Troy calls that the golden age of vintage. We are in the golden age of vintage. <laughs> I mean, I cannot think of a time. In, I mean, Kevin, we talked about this, like, last week, right? I mean, right. look how many blue options you can play. Several kinds of Jace decks. You can play Bob Jace. You can play Gus Jace. You can play Bob Remora. You can play Remora. You can play Painter with Bob or and Jace <laughs> and or Remora. You can play, right. you know, these Tezzeret Turbo Tez decks with four Tezzerets and two Jace. Or you can play four Thoughtcast. You know, I Intuition think... Intuition AK, Oath. You know, there's just so many. And then Workshop Options. Aggro Mud, Control Mud, Mono Red Workshop. Blue, red stacks. I mean, there's so many options. I think. Well, I don't think the workshop options are quite as diverse. But as there's you're the Forge Master versions, and That's then there's true. the Metal Worker. There's Forge Master, then there's Metal Worker Workshop Aggro, and then there's just Workshop Aggro without Metal Worker. Then there's the Control options, right. which are not trivial. Now, you and I appreciate the very subtle differences between all those things you just listed. <laughs> you think that, I the, think that someone who is not as familiar with vintage as a format would look at. A Forge Master deck and a Metalworker deck and a deck that, a Workshop deck that had neither of those cards in it, and side by side, and say these decks are eight cards apart. <laughs> what are you talking about? Different decks. This is this is like Stoneblade with this sword versus you know, that sword in Type Two. But the, the the aggro decks are like I mean you've got okay you've got the Null Rod aggro decks that have like Precursor Golems right. and Revokers, and then you've got like the Metalworker decks that run Steel Hellkite and and Worm Coil Engine. Yeah, well, they're totally different decks. I mean, and I you've agree. got the Forge Master versions that can run all these singletons and in you know like mere battle sphere. I agree, but you know what? The issue of diversity it has many definitions. Of course, well, fine. It's, a, it's aside, a perception issue. Let's though. set aside the workshop. That's fine. There have never been more diverse options for blue players. But see, that's what I'm getting at. It's, yeah. it's also a perception issue. And yes, I agree with you. From from my standpoint and from yours, I think there is lots of diversity, and there's very key choices both in and out you of the game. You can play Gush, you can play Bob. You can play Jace, you can play Tezzeret. I know. There are real, meaningful options in this format. But I would argue that to an external viewer who wasn't maybe as familiar with it, they, again, would look at all these blue decks and say, this has four Bobs, this has four Gush, big deal, this is the same but deck. But, the, but they're not, I mean, I hear what you're saying, the Bob deck has tops, the Gush deck has preordains. Right. You know, and then and you get to choose, you can play these accelerated turbo tests. I think, I think but, this is the but best. think of all those blue decks, though, and most of them win with Blightsteel Colossus and or and, uh, Time Vault. Well, you know, you swap out the engines, and I, that's very important. I'll give you if that. If you were going to create, like, the Choose Your Own Adventure book for Vintage <laughs> right now, it would start, like, the opening chapter would be, like, you've entered a, you know, a strange <laughs> place called Dominia, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Your first choice is, do you want to play with Jace, Lodestone Golem, or Necropotence? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and you choose one, and then you... I know. So I, I hear you, but I just think that there are so many meaningful options. I mean, I think you don't have to run Jace, you can run Tetherite. I think a lot of people would would call that analogous to do you open the door with your left hand or your right? <laughs> you know, I think well, a lot of people view it as that kind of, it doesn't matter, you're still going through the same door. I think, I think, that it, I think people look at Ninja, they say, okay, all these decks have Moxon. Yeah. You know, and they all have Force of Will. Demonic Tutor, Vampire Tutor, Yogg Will, Tinker, blah, blah. Yeah, it's true. The Remora decks, the Bob decks, the, but that's not even close to what the, like it was like in 2007, 2008. Yeah. When the Gush, like, yeah, you had a Painter deck. Yeah, you had an Oath deck. Yeah, you had a Grow deck. Yeah, you had a Storm deck. But they all shared the same 30 blue draw spells. Four <laughs> Merchant Skull, four Brainstorm, four Gush, right. four Ponder. So That's not even close Isn't to that very interesting, today. though? Don't you see kind of a flip where 
back in the age you're referring to, it was the the connective tissue was universal, and then what you did with it was different. Right. Painter, oath, that kind of thing. Now, what you the what you do with are... it is all the same. It's all time vault and blight steel colossus or tendrils, I, I and do... all the connective tissue is the thing that's changing. That is an interesting observation, except I don't think it's quite true. Don't, I, th- don't I think, think the oath of druids is viable. And that's and that's very. When's different. the last time it top aided though? Just the other day, Juan got second place with Tyron Oath. It was oh. a heavy workshop meeting. Okay, I mean, yeah, Oath. When we were setting up our gush, Oath is the best gush deck. If you're in a workshop, when we field, were setting period. up our vintage overview from last episode, we saw very few Oath decks in the last two months worth of top eight. It's true, but part of the reason for that I think is because the Tyron Oath deck is complicated, and the format has also moved away from workshops. So that makes yeah. the gush Oath deck a lot worse. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll give you that. So I just think it's very interesting that diversity is a perception issue. It, yeah. it depends on your That's comfortability fair. with evaluating how decks play the out. Strategic endpoints are more uniform, and yeah. potentially they were. We've consolidated our strategic endpoints around to empty the warrens, tendrils. Blightsil Colossus and Time Vault. Right. Yog Will slash Tinker. Right. I mean, yeah, that's true, but the ways you get there have never been more different. Never. And that's the thing that will de- and that's the thing that will determine how you win tournaments. Exactly. Is if you know how to navigate your way. If you've chosen Gush and you know how to navigate through a field of Bobs and Remoras, there's key interactions there. Yeah. Compared to if you've chosen Bob or Remora. Just right. you know need to know how to, to take advantage of those interactions. I'm starting the uh Second quarter metagame report. In fact, yeah. I'm writing an, an article, hopefully by the end of the month, will be released, like the 50 decks of vintage. And I've been going through the data, and I'm, it's just so interesting to see all the permutations of different, you know, card choices. I mean, I've seen, like, Remora with Dark Confidant, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and Remora with Gush, and, Remora, and these cards combo with Painter. I mean, there's so many ways to get there now. Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. So just to answer the question, what do you think makes a format fun? I most identify, I think, with the diversity-type topic. And I'm not in necessarily the same way that Troy put it in switching between decks, because I tend not to do that very much, just in my history. But I believe that it's very much more enjoyable for there to be a broad a breadth of options in a format. I, While I agree that it's very interesting to analyze and discuss the intricacies of the blue decks, especially in today's day and age... I find it a little unsatisfying that the workshop archetype is still so... These decks are 52 cards the same, and you choose these eight. Well, they're a good good 35 cards the same. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like more to me. It it feels like more. As a stacks player, maybe I'm just responding... It's a meaningful choice. Do you play Metalworker or not? Do you play Null Rod or not? Not denying that it's meaningful. Do you you play... It just all feels so similar, that is is all. So so this is sort of... You know what I'm setting up here. I've already set up my framework... I think that every single, virtually, setting aside the aesthetics of magic, right. you know, the art, which is, is important. We know that stuff is important. The themes are important. I think that all the things that make vintage fun can be devolved into three, really one big category, and I call that meaningful choice. Mm-hmm. And this sort of arose in the context of the, of the banning, of the discussion of whether to ban Jace or not in standard. I think that there are meaningful choice is the core thing that makes vintage fun, every uh, magic fun, and every single thing that people can name that isn't aesthetic or social. Right. Goes down to uh, um, meaningful choice, and meaningful choice has three really levels or dimensions. The first is meaningful choices within a game, and I define meaningful choices as decisions, options that you have, decisions that you make that affect the outcome of the game. So mm-hmm. that goes to what Dub Dub was saying. Right. You know, like, he says, I want to be able to influence the outcome of the game. 
That's what I call meaningful choice. But you have to have meaningful choices. You know, Things you, that are not obvious or the only real choice. <laughs> right. You actually have to think about it. Do I play Demonic Tutor here? Right. Or do I hold up Mana for Mana Drain? Right. Do I play Thoughtseize or do I play Preordain? These are meaningful choices that affect the outcomes of the games. And you right. have to be able to make, determine. The second dimension or level of meaningful choice is choosing a deck. So you've got in-game decision-making, which is the first, and then second, choosing a deck from a, a, a list of decks. If you don't have... This goes to the diversity thing, and I think the diversity thing is subsumed in this. Right. If you don't have meaningful choice, there is no diversity. There is a monopolistic format. Again, the choice is meaningful. There might be choices, but if they're not meaningful, if they don't actually matter... Yeah. You know, and I think to your point, today we have very, very many meaningful choices. Absolutely. Even if the decks share 50 cards... More so than ever. The, the choices are heavily tailored towards those who understand their significance. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. And then the third level of meaningful choice, which I've said is sort of once you've selected an archetype, tuning it, designing it, you know, like sideboard decisions and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I think meaningful choice is that I think almost everything can that isn't, again, so, so social or aesthetic mm -hmm. can be subsumed under that, that framework. And I, and I think everything that people mention that makes magic fun is, and that, that's why Jace had to be banned. Because Jace destroyed... You know, in standard, one of the biggest components of meaningful choice. Mm -hmm. Meaningful choice is is the essence of skill. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, I agree. I think it sounds good, and I think it, you're right. It is one of the features of today's vintage format. All right, Steve. So we've got another doozy of a podcast behind us, but we do need to come up with at least a question of the week again. So what do you think? Well, since we covered M12 today and it was really exciting, I think we should ask folks to tell us what car they think is going to see the most play in vintage from M12. And if you want to throw in your thoughts on Legacy, too, we'll be happy yeah, to. We won't turn those away. <laughs> so, so don't forget to email us and respond on Twitter. And our email address is... What so is our email? Insane, so, so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. And our Twitter account. Many insane plays. Be sure to check out our Twitter. That's right. We'll be more active there as we get more and more feedback from you. So if you give us feedback there, we'll give you feedback that way too. Until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Yeah.